What's up, everyone? Happy Saturday. You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Nando, we have a banana show ahead for you guys. Um, I love You want to give them a little sneak peek? Well, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the sad news is we don't have Jeremy Corbyn uh, because he canceled last second. But we do have Ronan Burtonshaw, editor of Tribune, friend of the show, great Irish lad, just very smart dude, um, like, you know, knows his history, knows the world, um, is very connected to left movements all over the world. So uh, love having Ronan on. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that discussion. We'll have, um, you know, some media critique, uh, of course, especially how it relates to the way both Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn were covered in the press. Um, we're also going to discuss the response to the pandemic, both here in the United States and in the UK. I think that's incredibly important to look into. And then um, in our SALT segment, we're going to talk about how child labor making a comeback. All of a sudden, flowery pieces, (laughs) flowery opinion pieces published in The Guardian about how awesome child labor is. Great. I don't even want to I don't even want to think about what like the dark corners of the Internet did with that piece, you know, like and Bill Gates Mm -hmm. funding that piece. Like I don't even want to I don't even want to my mind can't even go there, Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, because it just confirms like or at least few feeds like the just the most insane conspiracy theories you could ever think of. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, they, it's outrageous. themselves? Yeah. Well, uh, we'll give you the details on that later in the show. But I just wanted to mention, newest episode, uh, episode newest edition of the Jacobin Magazine is out. Look at this oh, amazing yeah. cover. Okay. Um, I, I love this. Uh, so many great pieces. Seth Ackerman's piece is in here. And I think, you know... He does a really great job connecting history to uh, our current moment, what we're experiencing in electoral politics. Um, There's a great infographic in there uh, that compiles uh, some of the information from the census uh, and gives you a look into how Americans are living and how many hours a week Americans are working. I mean, 80 hours a week. I don't have health care. I'm just going to randomly pick one and read it to you now. I'm looking for work. I don't have health insurance. I moved last year. I'm working in landscaping services. I have never been married. Um, There was someone in there um, who got married in 1982 and uh, had her first child. I had a baby Mm -hmm. last year. I don't have health insurance. I got married in 1982. Just really fascinating stuff. But of course, um, you can't help but have... um, your class consciousness kicks into full gear while reading, uh, you know, these very short blurbs about people's personal lives. So highly yeah. recommend you guys uh, subscribe to the magazine. Uh, the artwork in it is incredible. It's just so well done. And a uh, friend of the show, Daniel Bessner, has an incredible article on the Millennium Challenge, which is the largest war game ever conducted in which, you know, the United States fought a fake kind of middle eastern country and got their asses kicked <laughs> so and it, it yeah. says a lot of interesting things about the way u.s empire is kind of run and the sort of internal contradictions within it and bestner did an amazing job at it so yeah i highly recommend it and Absolutely. every jacobin issue it most importantly much like this show you got to look good to play good you know mm. so mm. every jacobin issue looks good yeah <laughs> yeah so honestly like the aesthetics it's just so well done mm. Yeah. Chef's kiss. Um, you know what else is chef's kiss? Verso <laughs> what books. Is oh, Verso books. Yes. Yes. We are in November, and you know what that means, people. That means new Verso book club picks. 
Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate 50 years of radical publishing, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month and includes all of Verso's ebooks. That's 18 ebooks in November. I mean, you got time in Thanksgiving. Yeah, time off. You can read some Verso ebooks, including Automation and the Future of Work by Aaron Beninov, Feminist International How to Change Everything by Veronica Gago, Critical Encounters Capitalism, Democracy, Ideas by Wolfgang Streak, and The Corona Crash How the Pandemic Will Change Capitalism by Grace Blakely. Verso, baby. Love it. Get in on love the action. It. You won't want to miss it. All the ladies love Verso. All the ladies do love Verso, at least the ladies you want to, you know, associate yourself with. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, you can uh, radicalize other ladies by getting them to read some of those ebooks. 18 in one month. Jesus Christ. That's a lot of books. Yeah, <laughs> so. That's a lot of books. I don't read that fast. I can't read that fast. No, I, me you know. either. I, I want to like really, the way I like to read and I guess don't judge me, I, I have to be completely relaxed, smoke a little weed. And like, I, I read slowly, but I absorb it and it resonates. Yeah. Like I can't just do it in the middle of the day when I'm rushed or uh, when I have a yeah, billion yeah. other things going on. Um, people who can read that much in one month are pretty impressive. It's crazy. Yeah. I don't understand it. All these smarty pants people. I don't get it. I, I read very slowly as well, but you know, yeah. I do read you people, you know, yeah, I know you guys yeah. like to make fun of me, but they're there. <laughs> And they're there. You'll never, you'll never live down those empty, those empty bookcases. Uh, but again, never. that wasn't Nando's home. You're, you're house sitting. You're actually was, in your home now, and you do have a I fine was, collection of books. Your room smells like rich mahogany. That's we all true. Know this. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I know many important people. Yes, all of that is true. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nando, well, yeah. um, I want to hear about your decode segment. Um, some much needed critique on the Democratic Party. Let's do it. All righty. Well, people, you know the expression, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Well, the polls were wrong in 2016, fooling all of us. And folks, they were wrong again in 2020. In the lead up to the 2020 election, story after story put Joe Biden safely ahead of Donald Trump in the polls. But that night, razor-thin results rolled in, dashing Democratic hopes for a Biden landslide. This is not the night that Democrats wanted. There is going to be hand-wringing and head-scratching for quite some time to come. Yes, the Democrats were left head-scratching because all the polls told them that they were going to cruise to an easy victory for Biden and just as importantly that they were going to retake the Senate. Instead, it was too close for comfort for Biden, and pending two special elections in Georgia in January, they failed to retake the Senate. This was despite the fact that the average of all the polls, which is supposed to be the most accurate way to measure this, had Biden up to such a big lead that he was going to win in a historic landslide. It's really not that much of a mystery. It's just that, that every pollster has a different set of assumptions about whether they've got the sample right, which is why Biden can be up by five points nationally in one poll and 12 in another. So is there any kind of a real clear picture? Here's my advice. Take the average. And the average basically um, tells you that Biden's up nationally by about seven and a half points. I should mention on March 20th, 
Biden was up by about seven and a half points. So if you had gone into hibernation on March 20th and awakened yesterday, you would have assumed nothing happened. And yes, it's true. The polls did have Biden up around seven or eight points throughout most of the campaign. And you figure that kind of consistency in the polling would mean that it's probably accurate. Instead, Biden did not win by seven or eight points, as the polling indicated he would. He actually ended up winning by 3.5 points, way less than the polls predicted. But it wasn't just the national numbers that were off. In fact, the state-by-state state numbers were way off. 538, for example, gave the Democrats a 75% chance of retaking the Senate. More shocking still, Democrats were widely assumed to increase their House majority. Instead, their majority shrank. And it's hard to overstate just how wrong the polls were. Take a look at Maine, where longtime Republican moderate Susan Collins was in a tough re-election fight against Democrat Sarah Gideon. Gideon was up in virtually every single poll taken. But in the end, Susan Collins won re-election by a comfortable 8.8 point margin. Despite the fact that Joe Biden won the great state of Maine. And of course, the ire of liberals has been trained mostly on one man celebrity polling guru and statistical genius, Nate Silver. So in 2016, we had Trump with a 30% chance of winning roughly. But look, you know, I don't control when the 30% happens, the 10% happens. So Congratulations to Nate Silver, the new Mr. Wrong 2020. As Mr. Wrong, you will write a think piece about why you were actually right before the news media gives you another chance in 2024. Ah, yes. Poor old Nate has now had two bad elections in a row. A far cry from 2013 when every single mainstream outlet was in a bidding war to buy his massively successful blog, 538. You see, Nate Silver burst onto the scene in 2008 when he called 49 of 50 states in the general election. Then, in 2012, he became a sort of liberal spirit healer after they started panicking that they were going to blow the election against Mitt Romney when Barack Obama tanked in the first debate. That's right, George. Uh, Obama campaign officials uh, conceding that Romney seemed more polished. They say they expect he will get a bump in the polls. Some Obama allies telling me that the president last night seemed tired and bored. So, yeah, liberals went into an absolute tailspin and began refreshing Nate Silver's blog every five seconds because he was the one that kept telling them that everything was fine, that Obama was still the clear favorite. In the end, he was right. Obama did win a pretty comfortable re-election, while good old Nate accurately called 50 out of 50 states. But then, Trump descended down that gilded escalator and kind of scrambled everything in 2016. Nate, of course, like everyone else except for Bill Mitchell, had Hillary Clinton as the clear favorite to win in 2016. You deal in probabilities, so what are the odds you're putting on the race right now? So right now we have Hillary's about a 75 or an 80% favorite. We have different versions that of the forecast you can look at. So here's how to think about it. Um, we're kind of at halftime of the election right now, and she's taking a 7-point, maybe a 10-point lead into halftime. There's a lot of football left to be played, but she's ahead in almost every poll, every swing state, every national poll. I just love the idea of Hillary Clinton playing football. Anyway, we know how that all turned out. But the point here is not to dunk on poor Nate Silver, or as the kids like to call him, Nate Bronze. As fun as that can be, that is not our mandate here on Jacobin Weekends. Here we try to go the extra mile and look at a topic du jour like polling and dig a little deeper. 
We could theorize as to why, all of a sudden, it seems that the polls cannot be relied on. I mean, it's probably too early to get real data on this, and it may not really be knowable. It's kind of a catch-22. The polls are wrong, therefore you can't poll people to figure out why they are wrong. It does seem, though, that the methods used to get a snapshot of public opinion may be obsolete. Maybe it's the kind of people that answer phones and take the time to answer a bunch of boring questions about politics or skewer, skewed towards politics nerds, and the model the models simply can't correct that. I mean, this was really striking when it came to seniors. Polling had Biden somehow winning senior citizens, and the last Wall Street Journal poll ahead of the election had Biden up by a whopping 23 points among seniors, and in the end, Trump won seniors by five points. So what the hell's going on? I mean, I find the argument that it skews towards people who are hyper-connected to politics pretty persuasive. But whatever it is, the fact is that the polls are unreliable. But maybe, in the long run, that's a good thing. Because thanks to people like Nate Silver, polling has become an obsession. Because elections run forever now, and media outlets need to fill the ever-constant content machine Polls become these sort of micro-news events that can drive political chatter for a day or two when nothing is really happening. What it does is it turns voters into amateur political prognosticators. And this is especially true of liberals. In the face of a frothing-at-the-mouth right wing, liberals studiously look at the tea leaves to see what candidates do better against the right and whether certain issues will be popular right on or not. I mean, this was the main reason why Joe Biden won the nomination for the Democratic Party this time around. But deeper still, it has also contributed to the turn away from mass politics towards a neoliberalized conception of politics as consumer choice. And the effect of that has been absolutely paralyzing. Nathan Akehurst and Rosie Collington put it quite eloquently in Jacobin when they wrote, Floating above the electorate, connected only by the polling data which you have outsourced to experts, is a lonely and isolating position. It makes public opinion a strange, snarling behemoth that you rely on your agents to tame. An opinion poll that claims 53% of people oppose Z is not merely intelligence indicating that a campaign to win the argument for Z should be mounted with strategy and guile. It makes Z seem unachievable, and anyone who argues for Z seem unelectable. When Z means something like migration or welfare, issues on which the right has for many years controlled the argument while the center-left vacated the field, it is easy to see how the logic of politics by numbers acts to constrain progressive interventions. And the status quo is amenable to the vested interests of those who control many of the levers of political discourse. Or as a lyric in Bright Eyes' Let's Not Shit Ourselves has it, the approval rating's high, so someone's going to die. If you can't change politics through a project designed to transform not just opinion, but the roots of opinion, then time itself stops. It becomes what Francis Fukuyama called, with much darker spin, the end of history. And they are 100% correct. The right wing is not intimidated by polls. They have an agenda and they seek to shape public opinion to their will. Most of their policies are deeply unpopular, with tax cuts for the rich at the very top of that. But they don't give a shit. They hammer the message home, and eventually a decent chunk of their partisans will be on board, and they move on to the next fight. That is, in a word, politics. Liberals have given up on politics entirely and rely solely on polling. The most striking example was this past presidential election in which the Biden campaign did essentially zero campaigning. Trump's campaign was knocking on a million doors a week, while the Biden campaign was knocking on zero. The thinking was, look at the polls. He's way ahead. Let's just not do anything to alter this current state of play. 
But the polling was misleading. And as the Dems' down-ballot disaster proved, the support for Biden ticket was soft. Turns out, if you don't campaign, it's hard to get people excited for your team. But beyond that, since polling itself has become a meta-conversation around our politics in a hyper-partisan country, people see the act of of answering a pollster's question as a political act in and of itself. Take this viral poll from August that asked whether the 100,000-plus COVID deaths in the U.S. was acceptable or not acceptable. 57% of Republican poll respondents said it was acceptable. This was seen as evidence that Republican voters were callous psychopaths with no regard for human life. But is that poll accurate? Or do they just see what the pollster is really getting at with the question? As Jacob Bacharach pointed out, what's really going on is that 57% of Republicans can easily detect a question that was designed as subterfuge to detect opinions about a president whom they support politically. They answered the real question instead of the fake one, which is why this kind of polling is diagnostically useless. The nominal question was, do you think 100,000 deaths is acceptable? But the real question was, do you think Trump is doing a good job? And they're not quite the same thing. And this works both ways as well. Take, for instance, fracking. Who can forget this memorable moment from the debates this year? And what about fracking? All right, now, let me, let me, have, let me allow fracking. Vice President I Biden to respond. I never said I oppose fracking. You said it I, on tape. I did show the tape. Put it on your website. I'll put it on. Put it on the website. The fact of the matter is Shows he's list. flat lying. Would you flat. rule out banning fracking? I do rule out banning fracking. Okay, so there was a heated fight about fracking, and Joe Biden came out and said he did not, in fact, support a ban on fracking. Well, shortly after that, there was a poll that asked voters whether they supported a ban on fracking. And lo and behold, Democratic voters' support for a fracking ban collapsed. Data for Progress, a pollster, asked Democratic voters before the debate whether they supported a ban on fracking. 65% of them said they did support a ban on fracking. Then, just days after the debate in which Biden came out strongly against a ban on fracking, Data for Progress asked Democratic voters the exact same question on fracking. Support for a ban on fracking dropped 16% in just a matter of days. So what changed? Was there some big fracking innovation that turned voters onto fracking in a big way? No. Did millions of people suddenly study the issue closely and realize that fracking was okay? No. What happened was that Joe Biden came out against it. Strongly. And Democrats like Joe Biden. He's their guy in the partisan war. So now Democrats hate fracking. So are opinion polls utterly worthless then? Well, no, not exactly. What is certainly worthless are polls that are hyper tied to a specific news cycle. What is more useful is polling over time. For example, Medicare for All has polled well over 50% for a long time now, despite the fact that both major parties oppose it, as well as virtually everyone in the mainstream media. There was even that viral Fox News poll that showed 72% of the population supports, quote, government-run health care. So why is that? Well, not to be glib, but sometimes things are so obvious that a poll is unnecessary. Most people like basic security. They like fair wages, which is why minimum wage increases typically win even in red states. They believe that government should be taking care of the things that are outside of their control, like crime, fires, and health care. So that's great news, right? But is that enough? Of course not. Politics still needs to be done, in a manner of speaking, to continue to change not just opinion, but the roots of opinion. And more importantly, to mobilize people around something like Medicare for All. And then politics has to deliver the goods. 
That is how the Democratic Party dominated American politics in the wake of the New Deal. They passed a bunch of reforms that improved people's lives for the better. And voters rewarded them for that time and time and time again. You don't need to be as smart as Nate Silver to figure that one out. So good, Nando. Uh, you were able to articulate um, much of the frustration I've been feeling in pretty much every election cycle I was old enough to um, talk about on the Young Turks. Um, so it's just like this blood sport uh environment that uh, the news cycle has created every election cycle. The election begins early, earlier and earlier and earlier in each election cycle. Um, so it's a year and a half before the actual election takes place. And we're already talking about polling. The media is already f- trying to figure out which candidates it's going to like shiv, um, you know, in, in their sleep. It's just incredible. And as you were talking about the narrative or, or public opinion shifting on certain issues like fracking, I couldn't help but think about what the right wing does in order to rally support either behind a candidate or a specific political issue. Um, just this week, there was a Republican politician named Dean Browning who forgot to log out of his burner account on Twitter or sock puppet account where he poses as a black man who's a huge fan of Donald Trump. Now, again, this is a right-wing white politician in the middle of the country. He is not a black man. He's not a gay black man, as he purported to be in the tweet that he put out. But the reason why the right wing does that is because they try to give you this illusion of mass appeal. And I feel like whether he's doing it wittingly or unwittingly, Nate Silver contributes to that same type of tactic, right? Just totally. creating, you know, I just feel like, yeah, the, the example you gave about frank, fracking is just indisputable and it's so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, there's a complicated uh, relationship between public opinion and power, right? Power can shape public opinion. Public opinion can also shape power in certain ways. You know, like it's it's not like totally like the way that the polling industry in the United States is interpreted by most people in the media is as if like there is this kind of frozen moment in time in which like the opinions of people are unmutable or not changing or, you know, and the fact is that that's just not true. I mean. Look at, I mean, polling on, on, on gay marriage, like it's a chicken and egg situation, whether like, you know, support for gay marriage is what led to, uh, you know, the gay marriage being passed in all 50 states um, or vice versa. Like once gay marriage was passed, people were like, oh, broadly okay with it. I mean, it's, it's both. Both of those things are reinforcing themselves. So what the Democrats don't understand is that they have a role in shaping public opinion. What they do is often is like, well, well, look at the poll is unpopular. This thing is unpopular. We can't do it. And sometimes it's even unpopular by like small margins, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. like, they they don't, they don't believe they have the ability to advocate for something and then like shape opinion, you know, that that's just, it's part of what leadership is. It's to agitate for something. (laughs) So I hear what you're saying, and maybe I'm a little too jaded at this point because the way that I look at it, the way it's framed in my mind is much more cynical. I think that they're acutely aware of the fact that they have the ability to shape public opinion, um, but they don't really have an interest in doing it. Um, And I think that it's abundantly clear in the kind of messaging that we saw both in Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016 and Biden's campaign in 2020. 
they both ran on nothing. I mean, Biden's message at a time when we're dealing with, you know, neo-Nazi marches and, you know, people getting snatched up in the middle of the street by federal agents and put into unmarked cars. Like, we don't want to hear about decency. Like, the fact that he ran on decency, it's kind of miraculous that he won. And, I mean, we've Mm -hmm. talked about this before. Part of the reason why he won is because Donald Trump bungled the response to the pandemic so badly that, you know, had it not been for the pandemic, I think that Donald Trump would easily uh, easily have gotten reelected. Um. I mean, the Democratic Party took a huge, huge risk in this election cycle while simultaneously regurgitating over and over again that it is, it's the most important election of our lifetimes. Donald Trump is a threat. Donald Trump is a threat. And I guess, to be fair, that was the other message they ran on. Donald Trump is a threat, and we need to be decent to one another. Let's bring back decency. Okay. Um, but I, I love I love everything you had to say, all of your critique about these polls, because it's it's not it's just another data point. So if you're part of the media or if you're a voter who's trying to analyze what's popular, what's not popular, which candidate is doing well, you should consider polls as just another data point. But I think mm-hmm. it's also important to understand the methodology behind that data point that you're taking into consideration when you're assessing the political climate. Um, and let's stop making celebrities out of dorks like Nate Silver who get it wrong over and over again. Like, you know, Jenk and I had this bet. Um, well, we had a few bets, but one of the things that he said, and I, I tried to get him to avoid doing this, was like weeks before the election, he's like, I'm calling it. It's going to be a landslide. Biden's going to win by a landslide. And I was like, based on what? And he yeah. kept bringing up the national polling. And I just think that that's, again, one data point, but you need to be um, considerate of the biases behind the scenes, the methodology that's being implemented to, um, you know, come up with these polls and consider other things that, you know, would work against the candidate. And I just saw so many flaws with Biden. And I don't think it has to do solely with my, um, you know, leftist, you know, I guess, desires for this country. It had more to do with understanding power, understanding politics, and understanding the moment that most Americans are experiencing right now with economic inequality. I'm talking uh, a lot and, today. Uh, sorry. No, 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 no. It's all good. Always good. But I mean, the, 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 at the end, in the end of the day, Bill Mitchell was right. You know, the things like yard signs and things like like crowd sizes and rallies, like all those things are also data points that sh- that can give you information about what it, the the mood of the country is. I mean, you know, the fact is, like, if you kind of like existed in the world, uh, you could probably sense that there was more enthusiasm around Donald Trump than there was for Joe Biden, even though the polls showed Joe Biden with a huge lead, and he ended up he did end up winning the the sort of popular vote. But you know that that there was this sense that okay, but people like. People like love Trump. Like, there's a lot of people out there who love him and who uh, are very moved by him and can like you know, go out to an event and all that stuff. Even in the middle of a pandemic, you know. So those things are also data points that should be considered alongside polls. And like with someone like Bernie Sanders, like this was evident, especially in 2016, when you know when he first got onto uh, jumped into the threw his hat in the ring. 
against Hillary Clinton. Like, I mean, he was, she had like a 70 point lead or something crazy, you know, but Bernie all of a sudden starts getting like people at his events, you know, and and on a large scale, like thousands and thousands of people, tens of thousands of people showing up to see this guy talk. And you're like, wait a minute, but there's something else going on here. You know, you can't just look at the polls and sense like, oh, well, you know, it's going to be a blowout. No, he did politics. He did the, well, yeah, the big crowds at the end of the day matter. They do matter. They do. Like, they do. The enthusiasm you know? matters. And you're absolutely right about that. Absolutely. But again, that's yet another data point that I think gets yeah. ignored by liberals. And I think that's a problem. If you're putting yeah. all of your um, hopes and dreams behind the accuracy or your perceived accuracy of Nate Silver polls, you're going to be in for a world of pain. And I think that's what people experienced in 2016. And quite honestly, like on the first night of uh uh, the 2020 election, where I think most people were like, oh, this is actually playing out a lot worse than we expected based on the polling, right? But, you know, he did end up winning after the uh, Not to toot my own horn, but not to toot my own horn, but TYT did a pool, right? Of like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you have to predict the election or whatever. Um, I got exactly right. 306 electoral votes for Biden. I mean, I flipped North Carolina and Georgia. Okay, messed that up. But for example, Florida. Biden was up in basically every poll in Florida leading up to, I mean, he wasn't up as big as in other states, but he was kind of consistently ahead in Florida. But I'm from Florida. I'm like, there's no way Biden's beating Trump in Florida. Like, I, don't give, I don't give a shit what the polls say. You know, I'm not buying the Florida hype. Uh, Trump is winning Florida easily, in my opinion. You know, like that was, that was my kind of just, and I used my gut. Like I didn't use data. I mean, I used data to like look at it and stuff, but I was like, no, no, no. I'm from Florida. I know Biden is not winning Florida. I just know that. I don't know why I know that, but I know that because of things like, you know, the enthusiasm gap and just like, I can sense it. I can, I can like, I'm out in the world. I'm talking to people. Like I can sense that Joe Biden is not winning Florida. Um, So yeah. Yeah. Ignore, don't ignore the polls, but don't obsess about them is the point. Don't obsess about them. Again, just think of them as another data point. And honestly, I think that the majority of the electorate does see it that way. It's just like these... I don't I don't know what the label is, but people who are drunk off cable news um, think it's everything. And it's not. It's not everything. Not even close. Um, but anyway, uh, we're not done talking about the aftermath of no. the 2020 election. Um, I'm going to talk about a specific proposition from California. But if you're thinking, well, I don't live in California. Why should I care? You should mm-hmm. care because Prop 22 yes. is coming to a city near you. So. Proposition 22, an anti-labor ballot initiative that creates a third category of independent contractors with less protections and workers' rights, unfortunately passed in the state of California. Now, while this is only impacting app-based gig workers in the state of California for now, I think all other states in this country need to be warned about the impact of this ballot initiative and how it's very likely to come to a a state that you're living in. And you need to do anything and everything possible to prevent the passage of a similar law or a similar ballot initiative. Again, we need to avoid it. So the simplest way to sum up Prop 22 is that it excludes app-based 
gig workers from even the most basic labor protections. So to sum it up, it's basically taking a giant step back in the labor movement. Uh, Prop 22, according to the Washington Post, which was approved by 58% of workers, makes drivers independent contractors with promises of 120% of the minimum wage and a health care contribution equivalent to either half or 100% of the employer-provided average under the Affordable Care Act. But there is a giant catch, as there always is when you're dealing with a company that wants to maximize gains and cut costs as much as possible. So unlike full employment, however, benefits are calculated based on a driver's active time, negating the potential hours per week they spend waiting for a fare while logged onto the apps. So they could be working and not getting paid for the work they're doing because they're not getting paid. Under Prop 22 and how it was written, these workers are not getting paid unless they literally have someone in their vehicle and they are driving them to a destination. So uh, drivers will now receive limited health benefits. I mean, if you just do a deeper dive on what Prop 22 actually uh, does, it gives these workers limited health benefits, but only for those who log enough hours and an hourly pay guarantee that the UC Berkeley Labor Center study actually found to be worth only $5.64. And we're talking about a state that is incredibly difficult to live in. If you're making $15 an hour in the state of California, it is difficult to make ends meet. Now imagine making $5.64 an hour. And again, that number... Um, is what comes up after you take into account the amount of time gig workers are not getting paid because they are simply logged in, they want to work, but they don't have a customer or they're not delivering something or they're not driving a specific person or group of people in their vehicle. But there are other downsides uh, to this proposition that I want to share with you. For instance, um, workers will also end up shouldering, shouldering all of the overhead involved in driving, using your vehicle in order to to drive people from point A to point B. Um, they do not get paid time off. They do not get overtime pay. And this is particularly particularly re- relevant right now considering the pandemic. These workers also do not get any paid sick leave. So again, if you do a deeper dive, what you'll see is that this ballot initiative, which unfortunately did pass, puts workers at a significant disadvantage. And um, if they're suddenly fired, they won't have any recourse. For a California rideshare driver who died from COVID-19 last month, his independent classification means his family will receive no workers' compensation. So what's good about this initiative? Again, if you actually read the wording of it, if you understood what would happen to workers once it's implemented, you could fully understand that some of the advertising, the yes on Prop 22, uh, you know, side put out there was just complete and utter BS. Um, It also restricts consumers, by the way, from holding these companies accountable if something happens to them while they're being driven or, you know, if one of their uh, private contractors... uh, 
harms them in any way. Because what these companies can then turn around and say is, well, we're not liable. This is a third party. This is an independent contractor. This is not something that we are responsible for. So it's bad for the workers and it's also bad for the consumers. And the new law will beat down on workers who are already at a significant disadvantage economically. Gig workers are predominantly Older people of color and immigrants without degrees, savings, proper insurance, or other sources of income, and they typically drive more than 30 hours a week to support their families. And by the way, this law is nearly impossible to change in the state of California, where you need an insane majority um, in order to make changes to it. So um, in order to uh, make any changes, lawmakers in the state of California need to pass those changes by seven-eighths of the California legislature. It's just, it's never going to happen. This is it. This is the law, and this is what workers unfortunately have to deal with in California unless workers find a way to organize and fight back against it effectively. But organizing is even more difficult um, under the way this uh, new initiative, which is now implemented, um, was written. So the ballot measure was actually a direct response to An okay bill. I I wish it was stronger, but a bill that the California state legislature passed. It was known as AB5, Assembly Bill 5. California's AB5 recognized gig workers as full employees, entitling them to labor rights like unemployment insurance, paid sick leave, overtime, and a path to unionizing. Prop 22 exempts the gig companies from AB5 and instead creates a third category of independent contractors with few perks. And so the tech companies that employ these gig workers were not pleased with AB5. Um, They believe that the law should not in any way apply to them. And so they started to fund this aggressive effort to either repeal it or find a way to make sure that the state excludes them from this law. And so they went forward with this ballot initiative, arguing that maybe direct democracy is the best way to handle this. But the problem with ballot initiatives is that usually you'll have one side, the moneyed side, that gets to put out all sorts of misinformation about what the ballot initiative actually does. And to be sure, Uber and other tech companies, Silicon Valley tech companies, spent quite a bit of money, about $200 million in order to ensure that this ballot initiative passed. And so um, what really stands out is how much difficulty Silicon Valley CEOs have in rebranding their efforts. Um, Because in reality here, they wanted to crush the workers. They wanted to exploit the workers. Um, But they try to sell this as, oh, no, it's great. This is all about workers' choice. And you can get a little taste of that during an interview with Uber CEO on CNN. Let's watch. There are new suggestions and laws that have been put in, for instance, in California. Let's take the whole gig economy, which Uber personifies, Mm -hmm. um, saying that your drivers, your employees need to be treated like human beings, need to be treated like employees with all the attendant rights uh, and regulations. I don't think you I think you oppose that, right? The traditional view of work, which is you have a full-time job, you only work for one company in your life, um, that idea is, is outdated, right? I think now work used to be about the company. You work at IBM, that's your career, et cetera. We think work should be about work, about what you want to do when you want to do it. And that's the new way of work, which is 
independent work or so-called gig work. And we do think that just the society's expectations have changed. We should change the nature of independent work. Because, you know, to follow up the California state senator, she has said, let's be clear, there's nothing innovative about underpaying someone for their labor. I mean, you indicate that you agree with that, but you want to, you don't think this law applies to Uber in all its... We don't think, we think that under AB5, our workers are independent workers, okay? They uh, have to fix their own cars, they have to buy their own cars, they don't they get do. vacations, they don't get health, they but, don't get... Listen, the, they, get, they get vacations because they can do whatever they want. Okay, so let's make one thing very clear. A vacation from work is when you get to take a little bit of time off to relax without in any way risking your livelihood. Under this ballot initiative, workers do not get paid time off, period. They don't. So if you need a break, let's say during a pandemic because a family member is sick and you need to be a caretaker, you take that time off, but you do not get paid for it under this new classification of independent contractors. It is an absolute disaster. And many people are going to feel the ramifications of it. Um, And how? How did something like this pass? I think it's important to look into that issue as well in order to effectively fight back against the passage of similar laws or ballot initiatives. So as I had mentioned earlier, Silicon Valley tech companies overwhelmed the opposition with um, and muddled the truth with a record-breaking $200 million campaign, pelting voters with misleading ads that framed the proposal as a social justice cause. Of course, it's not a social justice cause. That didn't stop them from using this message of, employee choice and freedom in order to get people to sign on to it. And just to give you an example of the kind of misleading content that was released against AB5, right? That was uh, for workers' protections and in favor of a ballot initiative like Proposition 22. Get a load of this ad, which to give you a little more context, involves a woman who was suffering from cancer and Uh, you know, is a mother and is a hard worker. You get all of this context and then voters get slapped with this message. The way that AB5 is written is that you must have anyone who works for you on as a W-2 employee. The people that want to work with me, they don't want to be a W-2 employee. They don't want me to be able to tell them you have to work these hours next week. I can't hire in freelancers to help me get the job done. There isn't enough work in my business consistently to bring on employees. That's a huge challenge to not be able to hire someone per event. Another major surgery coming up in just two weeks. I don't get to hire in someone to fill in for me. I should not have to close my business because I can't hire in extra help on occasion. That's really unfair. So understand that that ad came out fairly recently, which means that uh, simply passing Proposition 22 in the state of California isn't enough. Um, There's an effort to repeal uh, AB5, which uh, does luckily protect some workers in the state, but it doesn't apply to app-based gig workers. 
Um, now, with that said, Uber, uh, of course, is looking into the future, even though they're bleeding money every single quarter. And they're looking to expand their model to other states, joining an executive from Rival Lyft, for instance, who said something very similar. Let me give you the statement from Uber CEO, where he says, going forward, you'll see us more loudly advocating for laws like Prop 22. Uh, we were the first to come forward with this independent contractor plus model. The idea that drivers deserve flexibility plus benefits, again, absolutely misleading. We want to have a dialogue with governments in other states. So this is coming to your state. This is a, a concerted effort by Silicon Valley CEOs to ensure that they crush and exploit workers while I guess maximizing their profits. But again, a company like Uber every single quarter is just bleeding money. So all of this for what? For a failing company? For a company that has an incredibly risky and unstable future? But let me give you more. Um, they lost over $5 billion in the second quarter of 2019, Uber did. And obviously, uh, they continued to bleed money during the pandemic when demand for, um, you know, these ride-sharing services decreased. And uh, in August, The Verge wrote this, the chronically unprofitable company lost $1.8 billion over the last three months with its adjusted net revenues down 29% compared to quarter two of 2019. And just to repeat myself, quarter two of 2019 uh, was when they bled over $5 billion um, and did not turn a profit, clearly. So the company is also eyeing um, other avenues in which they can make money. Silicon Valley uh, CEOs have definitely focused more of their energies on engagement because user engagement means that you provide more data and then they can sell that data. And so in an interview with The Verge, uh, Uber's CEO talked about their future plans as well. Uber doesn't want to just be an app. It wants to be a platform for every mode of urban transportation you could possibly think of, even if it's not making money off of some of those modes. You see, the more stuff that Uber can cram into its app, like bikes and scooters and buses and subways, the better chance it has to squeeze money out of all that engagement. To some extent, we're competing against ourselves. You're not making money off of this. Um, so why offer it? One, it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's the right solution for the consumer. Usually, if you aim uh, at the best solution for the consumer, you'll win long term. Mm -hmm. Second, we have seen experimentally that increases engagement with the app. Mm. Uh, that more people, they wake up, they use the app uh, more often. And if more people are opening our app more often, uh, then there will be business down the road. We'll be able to monetize that one way or the other. So um, like the other clips that I showed you, he's absolutely full of it. Um, as I've shared in a previous uh, Decode segment for this show, these companies make a ton of money by gathering your personal data and selling it. So anytime you hear any of these CEOs arguing that they're, they're doing things, they're offering these free services because they have the consumer's best interests in mind. No, they don't. They want to, they essentially want to use you, uh, for your free labor because you're inputting your personal data into their app, which they then sell for profit to third parties. So let's get that straight. They love the free labor. And then on top of that, of course, they're crushing their employees, paying them far less than minimum wage in the state of California, which again is incredibly expensive to live in. So it's important to arm people with the information they need in order to, vote in their best interests 
if a ballot initiative like this comes to a state that they live in. But make no mistake, this does crush gig workers in the state of California. It does put them at a disadvantage. And it's about time we stop listening to the narratives coming from the well-funded corporate side of, uh, of the matter and actually listen to what the workers themselves want uh, in this situation. And we heard this narrative about how, oh, most of the workers want the freedom. They love the idea of unpaid sick time. Yeah. <laughs> If you paid close attention, you'd know that that's not true. I think we need to be more skeptical of Silicon Valley CEOs and do more to educate people about how their labor rights, those labor rights that were incredibly hard to um, you know, fight for and accomplish, are very quickly being um, scaled back by these disinformation campaigns um, you know, by moneyed interests. Yeah, and it's also uh, worth mentioning that uh, Uber's top legal officer, like basically their top lobbyist is a guy named Tony West, who happens to be Kamala Harris, our new vice president's brother-in-law. I'm sure that um, will just work out great for everyone involved. Uh, and I, you know, Prop 22 was one of the things that made me feel so bleak after election day. Um, yeah. I kind of knew it was going to, you know, it was going to pass and um, just the, the amount of propaganda that there was, was absolutely shocking. I mean, people who weren't in California don't understand. Like I've, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Just the, the, the amount of flood, like the full court press, um, that there was around prop 22. Like every time you opened your phone, it was like prop 22, like was, was in your face. And it was just like, every time you watched a YouTube video, it was like on your face. Every time you turned on the TV, like it was blanket, absolute blanketed everything um and it really is just kind of the most bleak neoliberal hellhole type thing i mean uber is uber is this uber is like almost everything that is wrong with american society today i mean in that yeah it's this totally enormous yeah. company that loses billions of dollars like does not make money it does not even turn a profit like it's just it is basically like an instrument for Silicon Valley uh, investors to uh, basically dismantle the state. I mean, Uber is like is blatant, blatantly like flaunts local laws wherever it goes. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like what it does. And it, it's allowed it's able to do so just because it has an endless supply of VC funding. Like they could just they could just weather the storm. I mean, who's going to like they're, they're not going to throw them in jail. You know, so like this was true when like, you know, local governments tried to ban Uber using self-driving cars, which like killed someone in Arizona. Um, and they were just like, mm -hmm. no, we don't we don't care. We're just going to keep doing whatever we do. We don't care. And here, like the government, California, a big, powerful state, one of you know the, the most popular, most populous state in the in the union passes a law that affects Uber. And they're like, no, we're just not going to do that. We're just we're just not going to go ahead with that law. And they just violate the law. A judge tells them they have to do it, and they're like, okay, we're going to go on strike. They're going to do the capital strike, which we talked about on this show. And then they get the government to just basically give them a stay of execution, and then they just do this. Uh, they, they do Prop 22. Like, they just don't they – are, they are immune from democratic accountability, which is meaning us, the people, cannot influence them. It's, it's really bleak. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know – but one of the themes here, and I think it's important to point it out, is just the 
just the notion that you can um, control the worst elements of capitalism, that you can reform it, that you can keep it under control in order to protect workers. Because what we saw play out in California with AB5 and then the passage of Prop 22 in such a short period of time, by the way, yeah. uh, demonstrates to you how corporate interests will always find a way to claw back uh, yeah. you know, whatever deregulation um, they were enjoying in the first place. And that's certainly what's happening right now. And it's so devastating when you consider like how undemocratic the situation really is. So, you know, they sell it as, well, it's a ballot initiative. It's direct yeah. democracy. It's great. I mean, they, uh, of course, pump um, every uh, media medium, um, well, whether it's television or online yeah. ads with all sorts of misinformation. And then- when it comes to actual lawmakers who have been elected by the people to represent them, you need seven-eighths, seven-eighths of the it's state crazy. legislature to vote in favor of undoing the damage that Prop 22 does. That is not a democratic system. It's disgusting. It's not. I mean, it really shows just like the, the liberal state. I mean, California, California has Democrats everywhere at all levels. You know, um, it is just incapable to rein in these giant corporations like they it just can't it can't anymore um to the extent that it right. could even a little bit in the 20th century like it, now it's like they can just do whatever the hell they want and no one's there to stop them i mean it's just it's it's really bleak and um you know this th like you said this is coming i mean do not be surprised if there is some sort of push to do some sort of federal legislation some sort of like woke uh liberal now that biden's in and kamala's in they're gonna do like some woke liberal kind of like we're gonna create a new category of worker and it's gonna be awesome and it's gonna help minorities and blah 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 um and yeah because again you know all of the all of the obama uh people like the obama clan is um like works for silicon valley techno titans you know like jake hardney mm -hmm. is the chief lobbyist for amazon uh, you know, Sheryl Sandberg, who's going to be who is going to be uh, maybe possibly Hillary Clinton's secretary, secretary of the Treasury is Facebook's biggest, uh, you know, number two. Uh, David Plouffe was caught doing illegal lobbying for Uber. Uh, Kamala's brother in law is, is, a, is the lobbyist for Uber. I mean, that they're all that's where they all are. Um, so, yeah. And I mean, yeah. just all you need to do is take a look at by, I mean, it's already begun, Biden's transition yeah. team. You already have representatives from Uber um, serving in various, um, you know, portions of his transition team. It's broken down based on government agency. And it's, uh, you know, Uber's actually, um, they're, they're listed in like the intelligence portion of uh, Biden's transition team. Yeah. Which I think is I mean, yeah, it goes back to what I was saying in the segment. I mean, I love how they try to brand things as like, or like frame things as we're offering you a free service because it's the right thing to do. We're looking yeah. out for you, you know? Yeah. And then they turn around and they, yeah, they sell your data either to the government or to third parties so they can spam you with advertising. They sell it to data brokers who uh, can sell all your personal information for like a buck, that's what I had to yeah. deal with this year with a hacker. I talked about it on the show. So um, there are real consequences to what's happening right now. And, you know, it's just it is devastating that that proposition passed in California. Anyway, I could talk about this all day, but yeah. we have a fantastic guest uh, to join us now. Um, here with us on weekends, we have Ronan Burtonshaw. He's the editor of Tribune. And will talk to us about, 
you know, some of the parallels between Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, um, uh, you know, in the UK. Ronan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Nando, why don't you take the first question? Well, I just want to very quickly, just because uh, we were talking about Prop 22 and the Tech Titans, you know, you know Ronan's good friend, uh, Nick Clegg, is actually a, one of the top executives uh, at Facebook. Nick Clegg was the leader of the Lib Dems. Um, so, yeah, it's just it, the UK is not immune uh, from all. all this at all. Not at all. I wanted to, to chat about that a little bit, actually, because it's a really sure. important question. Focus self-employment before we get into Corbyn and Bernie and all the rest. Yeah, of the yeah, other. yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd love that. Depressing stories that we have to go through. Um, bogus self-employment is a really important question in the UK economy as well. All across the developed world, um, this is a tactic that they have used to push down wages, to attack trade unions. And you can see, I mean, the latest uh, statistics from the UK are fascinating on this. Um, Mark Harvey, uh, a sociologist in Manchester, did a, did a study, I think two years ago, that showed about three quarters of those that were listed as self-employed in the UK economy were bogus self-employed. Uh, they were people who, you know, we're talking about self-employed who don't have other employees. They're not businesses. The vast majority of their work is going to one company or a small number of companies within a single sector and there's been this huge growth in the proportion of people who are self-employed uh, within the economy since about the 1970s and 80s when the uh, great attack on on labor really uh, uh, you know took hold across the west uh, and it's a it's an important topic because uh, when you look into how it happened it was capital solution to some of the frustrations that workers had in the post-war period at the time of social democracy in Europe and, and the relatively decent period that you had in the States, um, uh, workers had frustrations about their lack of freedom, their lack of power in the workplace. And obviously a big part of how the left uh, provided answers to that was, well, we need unionization, we need workplace democracy, we need to empower workers and so on. Capital's answer was, no, everyone can just be their own little capitalist. Everyone can be their, you know, <laughs> their own little business um, yeah. who's, going to, who's going to be able to, you know, uh, make money and profit themselves and you'll be totally free. Uh, now, you go and ask a gig economy worker in Deliveroo and Uber and all of these kind of companies how free they are and they'll give you a very short, bloody answer. It has nothing really to do with freedom. Uh, the, the old kind of socialist quote, freedom for whom to do what comes in here, because the truth of it is, it, it is presented to people as freedom insofar as like you're nominally free. You can go and, you know, you're not we don't have a contract and whatever. But actually, uh, because you have to rent yourself to the people who own the capital, who uh, own the, the, the economy, effectively, you're not free. Uh, and what this means is that you don't even have the obligations from them that you would have had if you had a contract and you were an employee and so on. So it's a massively important structural question that they've managed, like a, a trick that they've played on working people across mm. the West. It's sad to see Prop 22 pass in the States, but I'm sure there will yeah. be better organizing um, uh, opportunities maybe when it's outside the, the den of Silicon Valley. Yeah, I, yeah. I, look, I think you make such a great point there because you're not truly free as a worker if you are um, basically functioning under the mercy of an app that you don't own, you don't control, um, and the terms are completely controlled by Silicon Valley. Um, that's an issue. You can just get pushed off the app um, and you don't have any recourse. I mean, it's just an absolute disaster. And in America, you know, the... 
narrative of freedom and liberty is so intoxicating that it can be used in any propaganda propaganda campaign um, to push people to vote or act in their um act in a way that's not in their best interest. I mean, we're seeing it with the pandemic where people have been propagandized to think that wearing a mask is violating their freedoms and their liberties. It's absolutely horrendous and and terrifying that we're finding ourselves in this situation when it comes to um, labor rights. Um, But what kind of action or what kind of organizing has taken place in the UK to kind of fight back against this? I mean, there's a significant uh, effort to try to organize gig economy workers. Fundamentally, the question for us is this, uh, when it comes to freedom, in my view anyway, you've got to be able to argue with people what freedom really looks like, because people do want to have power in their workplace. They want uh, to be able to make decisions where possible. They don't want to, you know, be kind of um, yoked to the plow, as the old phrase was. Um, and and so you've got to be able to make the case that actually what you do with companies like Uber is you democratize them. And that means that you give workers who are in them the power to vote and to have, uh, you know, a say in the, the organization of the company in much the same way as people feel that they have an inalienable right to vote in the political sphere. That you need to be able to democratize the economic one, much like the, the political one, at least to some extent, is, is democratized. And uh, when you make that case and you say, well, the real way to freedom is not everyone becoming an individual, but all of us in a, in a company um, being able to organize together to determine the conditions so that people are not left out, so that we have basic standards, so that a social floor is established. And of course, the only way to do that is, is through trade unions. And there have been um, efforts to organize gig economy workers, both with, within the kind of bigger trade unions and um, the GMB, the communication workers, uh, Unite, and also some of the smaller ones, IWGB, UBW, and so on. Um, and, and, you know, there have been degrees of success, but it's very, very difficult because once you get the self-employment model over the line, uh, you have all sorts of legislative problems with organizing um, uh, trade unions. You have the real difficulty of the fact that people are atomized and they're not coming together necessarily in the one place. If people are not mm. empl- employees, they're much easier to drop because all the company has to do, it doesn't have to sack them. It just has right. to stop. It just has to stop employing their labor. I mean, that's the fundamental yeah. question. How do you how do you prevent uh, you know a company from from doing you in? Um, and the 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 answer is, if you're self employed, it's extremely tough because you know you can effectively be sacked without ever being fired at all. They just stop uh, yeah. they stop uh, giving yeah. you out. Yeah, it's, it's happening now with the WWE. Weirdly, there's the, you know there's yeah, the yeah, organizing yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they just they can just drop them you know like at the at the drop of a hat as they say. But uh, Ronan, let's let's switch gears and talk about talk about our boy, our boy Jezza, our boy Corbin, you know, because we've talked about it a little bit on this show. But Anna and I are just a couple of yanks, you know. What 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 what's happened? What happened? In, what happened to Corbin? What what happened in the Labour Party? What explain that to us? Give us the inside scoop. Well, we lost. I mean, <laughs> um, but yeah. the, the broader, Sucks. the longer. Fucking hate it. <laughs> the longer. Fucking hate it. <laughs> Yeah, and I think we have to be real about you know that that's this that's the the big big picture. The longer answer in this case is that um, Jeremy Corbyn has been suspended by the party. 
Um, it was because of his response to an EHRC report into anti-Semitism in, in Labour. Uh, Corbyn's response, in my view, and uh, the view, I think, of the vast majority of members, um, it was measured. Uh, he accepted the findings of the report, but he said that he didn't agree with every line in the 100-odd pages. Um, and he particularly raised the fact that the extent of the, the problem in the party um, had had been exaggerated in some quarters, and particularly by those who, um, who were using it as a factional tool. Tool. Uh, and this is just, uh, it's very easy to evidence. It's its a demonstrable fact. Um, so there was a survey poll done, I think, in 2018, uh, asking the public the degree uh, to which they thought anti-Semitism was a problem in the Labour Party. And it showed that the majority of the public um, felt that about 34% was the number of Labour members that had complaints against them on anti-Semitism. And the actual number was, of course, a fraction of 1%. Um, so uh, the, there's no debate that this uh, the, the scale of, of the um, of the question has, has been exaggerated, um, and then the question the, you know the, the, the debate that comes in is um, well you know what had happened, and part of the reason why that was the case um, was that the, this was as as a lot of you know disputes uh, inside parties become they become factionalized, and this one uh, of course did, uh, and the examples again uh, can be laid out very very clearly the leaked report which you might remember from, from some time yeah. ago about the, the, the scandals inside the party. Yeah, um, uh, Margaret Hodge, who was a senior figure on the right of the party, was found to have made all sorts of grandiose claims about having had 100 complaints about Labour members that were bona fide, nailed on anti-Semitism. I and mean, when it went in and the people looked into it, I mean, 80% of them weren't even members of the party. Um, so, like, the, this, it, it, was, it, it was being, you know, these... these these questions were being drummed up, put out in the, the Twitter accounts, put out in the press and so on, without um, anyone evidencing, uh, evidencing them. But Corbyn did accept, and which I think he should have and was the correct thing to do, um, the examples the HRC provided where there were real problems um, uh, with this question. He produced a statement that accepted the findings, called for them to be implemented swiftly about professionalizing um, the kind of processes in the party where there are complaints and so on. Um, and, uh, and he was suspended anyway. And the truth is, they were looking for an opportunity to suspend them uh, because of the nature of what the Starmer project is, because of what they think is their path to victory, uh, which is that fundamentally they believe that the way to make Labour electable again and to get into power with their politics is to break with anything that might appear radical, to break with that socialist past of the past of, of recent years. You saw this from the earliest stages when they left the left out of the shadow cabinet. Obviously, they sacked Rebecca Long-Bailey, who was our candidate for the leadership. Now, all of even the junior people who were in the um, so they left the left out of the senior shadow cabinet positions. Now, even all the junior ones who were in minor positions are gone. Um, they appointed a, a directly and, and brazenly factional general secretary, but like your own Tom Perez in the DNC. Um, they, forced, <laughs> uh, they forced the left to, to um, uh, they forced resignations of key figures on the left by pushing through lines and like abstaining on the spy cops bill, which is a really dreadful piece of legislation that allows um, police and intelligence services and actually a lot of sectors of the state beyond that don't even go into that but that's it's so so wild and so broad um, to to uh, to intervene in trade unions social movements uh, and so on it's an effective immunity charter um, for uh, for the police to um, to engage in activities where like in the recent past 
past, it has been discovered that they a lot of this was going on, that they were spying on our movements. Um, this is like providing legislative basis to make it almost impossible to criticize them. So there's an inquiry going on at, at the moment, parallel to all of this, that is talking about how police inter, uh, intervened in left-wing movements and had relationships with women under false names and you know had kids and you know years-long relationships and then disappeared. And the Labour Party is supposed to now not stand up against this. Um, and, you know, when a leadership pushes stuff like that through, obviously it's an attack on the left and everything that we stand for. Uh, and most recently, uh, just in the last few days, um, they've been suspending uh, Labour Party members in, in, who are in positions. I want to raise the uh, solidarity with my comrades in Bristol, who, when they tried to pass motions in support of Jeremy Corbyn in the wake of his suspension, themselves got suspended just for discussing it within the party structures. <laughs> so Wow. So there, I mean, it's, it's a prolonged, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a prolonged attack um, uh, on on the left. And the reason, the reason is simple: these people, you know, it's not possible for Keir Starmer to go out there and present himself as unthreatening to capital and big business interests if he's got, as part of his coalition, a lot of principled socialists who want to stand up against, right. you know, the powerful and wealthy. Uh, and so it, it has to be very public that we're going to be pushed out that we're going to be marginalized and we have, you know, and this is, this is all part of that exercise. Um, Ronan, before I ask you um, my next question, I just wanted to read a, a kind message that someone left um, in our YouTube super chats. Um, I Debito uh, writes in and says Tribune magazine, which Ronan edits is yeah. magnificent and worth subscribing to very stylish and substantive left-wing content. So wanted to um, you know, make sure that I read that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So is Jacobin. It's the most yeah. important part. Yeah. You know, this is no, great. We get you it. Know, like, got to be stylish. We need to have the right message, but look good while doing it. Um, 100%. But, you know, everything that you just outlined, Ronan, um, it, it just makes it abundantly clear that leftist ideology has no place within the Labour Party. I mean, they're at war with leftists. It's, it's so clear. And just to draw some parallels uh, between what Jeremy Corbyn experienced to what Bernie Sanders experienced, you know, the most toxic and effective way in destroying someone's reputation and someone's message is to immediately accuse them of either enabling some type of racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, um, and, you know, essentially label them as either apologists or people who uh, engaged in that type of uh, behavior themselves. And what I'm curious about is, was there any skepticism toward that report regarding anti-Semitism or did the media simply report it and the general public bought it without really questioning it? Oh, well, of course. I mean, the media, um, <laughs> there isn't really any voice, despite the fact that, you know, the, the leader of the Labour Party for five years was a socialist, that he had a mass base inside, the sec you know, the, the second party of the state, that in 2017 he came within a few thousand votes of potentially becoming prime minister. Despite all of that, there was never a substantial section of the media that defended our positions uh, on the left. And that's just the truth of it. The Guardian, New Statesman, Mirror, all the rest of these, the traditional um, kind of institutions in the media on the left refused to defend the, the Corbyn leadership and, in fact, were, were probably the most enthusiastic in attacking us throughout those years. Um, and that that had a real impact on the ability of the Labour Party to fight back uh, against the, the Tories. And the reason for this is, is straightforward, because 
usually you've got this media landscape where in Britain the majority of the media are owned by either Rupert Murdoch's News UK of the print media, I should say, or uh, the Daily Mail group, right? So it's very weighted to to the right. Uh, and what you need to have then is at least some pushback from the centre-left media in order to stop the waves of right-wing attacks from washing over your party and, and your project. Uh, of course, we didn't get that. We didn't get that from the from the very uh, beginning. And as time went on, the institutions of the centre-left media, particularly the Guardian, became very important in breaking the back of the Corbyn project. Um, I, I would say the most particular example of this is over, over Brexit, where the Guardian and its Sunday version, The Observer, became um, effective organising tools for the People's Vote uh, campaign, which was the, the Liberal campaign won against Brexit, uh, which uh, used it as, a, as a, a wedge issue inside the Labour Party to, to break what had, up until that point, been a very clear consensus of Labour members and of the Labour base um, in support of Corbyn's positions, his policy positions, that we were not just going to go back to the last Labour government, that we were going to try to do something more fundamental to adjust um, the economy to the scale of attacks that working people had suffered, not only under the Tory austerity of the last decade, but going all the way back, yes, through through Blair and back to um, uh, the, the Thatcher era um, uh, beyond. And this was a strong consensus that we needed to finally, at long last, take action that was radical in the economy. Um, and the way in which this was, was broken apart was to try to realign uh, British politics along a culture war basis, which is what the Brexit debate was. Mm. The Brexit debate uh, was a debate fundamentally uh, between uh, more well-educated urban populations and uh, who are younger and older populations, particularly in kind of towns, post-industrial areas and so on, um, that in the latter of whom had voted leave and, and, and the urban populations that largely had voted remain. And when you realign politics along those kind of fault lines, then it becomes almost impossible to uh, to build the kind of class coalition that we needed to get our program across the line. So they very, very, you know, skillfully reshaped the political landscape after the great result of 2017 through the Brexit controversy in order to to break the back of the uh, the Corbyn project. And you couldn't have done that without these media institutions. And it's, it, you know, it's right. I mean, obviously, there's so many parallels uh, to the United States, although there are significant differences as well. I mean, but this, this um, sort of urban... Um, educated uh, culture war divide that exists that you describe exists 100% here. I mean, Democrats essentially win every city, even in red states, they win every major metro area um, and lose everywhere else, essentially. Um, and, and and it has this very weird coalitions of like, you know, tech titan billionaires with like working class black people. I mean, it's just, it makes no sense, right? But it's, it's, it's the culture war that drives these, these wedges. But so what what is the the path forward? Because hearing you describe the the sort of thoroughness and the clinical nature of the purges of the left within the Labour Party, I mean, is there any is there any going back to the Labour? Is there any is there any you know what, what's your position on that? Like, do you do you go back and try to retake the Labour Party again with a new Corbyn, or do you or do you have to go with a new party? I mean, we can't do that here in the United States, but. Maybe in the UK you can. I, I don't. I don't really know. No, it's not. It's not really viable in the UK either. I'm afraid. I know I'll, I'll get a lot of hate in the comments for saying that, but it isn't. We have a very similar electoral system to you, mm. um, which which does determine a lot of this. Um, and look, 
we have to be clear, right? A bit like your example in, in the US, um, <clears throat> the center is not part of the same political project as us at all. And they're, you know, if we're about fundamentally transforming the economy to put power and wealth back in the hands of working people, they're not about that at all. So we're not part of the same project. But is it better to have Keir Starmer as prime minister, for instance, uh, than Boris Johnson? Uh, is it better to have Joe Biden than, than Donald Trump? Yes, it is. And you've got to be fairly clear sighted about that, because uh, if you're not, what you do is you kind of allow the acceleration of of some of the, the worst aspects, say, for instance, the Tories who introduced the, the Trade Union Act um, in their last government, uh, that was you know, a direct attack on, on our ability to organise in workplaces by introducing all kinds of thresholds um, for voting to get over the line. So basically, you, you can only have a strike if you're getting a majority of people who are turning out and then you have to win the majority of that and so on So they've in a, in a, across a whole workplace. So they radically transformed how possible it was uh, to have successful strike action and successful ballots at exactly the moment when union density was, was going down. Uh, and mm. if, if you have laws like that passed, it transforms in a negative way our ability to, to fight and to win. So uh, I'm I'm still in the Labour Party. Um, we shall see how long all of that lasts uh, insofar as, um, you know, uh, we may all end up purged. But the bottom line of it is it is worth fighting. Uh, part of the reason why they're coming for us now in the way that they are is they know quite clearly that while the left has a voice, a substantial voice, what it does, like, for instance, what it did yesterday, and it wins a majority of the constituency seats in the national executive for left-wingers, for socialists who are clear and unambiguous socialists, while it continues to be able to do things like that, it continues to have access uh, to the mass of the population to make socialist arguments. And one of the reasons they want to drive us out of the party is that they want to close that window. They want to prevent us from having that access because they know full well that over a, any kind of longer period of time, the way in which Keir Starmer uh, and the middle of the party, uh, let alone even the more right-wing elements, uh, want to win uh, is by you know seeming more respectable, like they're a steady pair of hands, like they're the responsible kind of, you know, that they, they're responsible in government. It's the exact opposite to what we're arguing for, which actually the majority of people want, which is really fundamental change in the way the economy mm. works to... Put, you know, to, to, to change the nature of what it's like to, to work and to live in this country. And, and you know, the, the real challenge for us and the problem is we can't just take over the centre-left coalition. I think a lot of people on the left thought that we could just be them, but like more left wing. So we could play the, the culture mm. game, but just be more left wing. We could do, for instance, you know, or they still think now that we can do like what you guys uh, have now, which is the suburban Republicans having been won over to the Joe Biden Democrat coalition. And we can just somehow like take over at the head of that shift a ship and, and, and shifted in our direction. We can't. Uh, fundamentally, the people, the, the bedrock of the left wing's coalition has to be people who feel in their gut that there's an injustice, that they, um, you know, work hard, but that they can't get on in life. And the reason for that is that the system is rigged against them. These are people who have an indignation about that, who have an anti-establishment sentiment because of it. And these are the people we need to, to be organizing. Whereas the middle of the road, what they want is they, they the whole um, uh, 
aspect of, of their politics is about let's just return things to when it was all sensible and decent before Donald Trump, before Brexit. Let's just return things mm-hmm. to the status quo ante where it was a few years ago. Uh, and their whole way of looking at politics is that, you know, it's with a degree of superiority that we're better educated, we're smarter, we, yeah. run, the show, we run the show. I know that. Yeah. I mean, so it's it's totally different. And we have to have that fight. And I believe if we have that fight within the left, that actually a majority of, of people, even now with our current coalitions, right, who who um, who want to, to see left wing policies are going to be possible to win over to our side. And I think it would be a mistake for us to allow ourselves to go back to the margins like we were in the period before Bernie and before Corbyn. Mm. I was, a, you know, that's when I came up as a socialist activist. I remember it. I remember rooms of five, five lads and a dog. I know what that was like. and It was miserable. And it would be a mistake to, to allow ourselves to go back there. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, here in the United States, the Democratic Party has really latched on to identity politics and cultural issues in order to do the majority of their campaigning. It, it you know, gives them the ability to completely ignore um, the economic injustice that most workers are experiencing right now and have some message, right? So, of course, with Biden, there was this message of decency, which is a strange message to have when you have, uh, you know, this constant fear-mongering about the right wing. It's like, oh, they're terrible. They're going to destroy you. They're going to destroy your life. But we need to be decent. We're going to bring back decency with all these people who are accusing you of being pedophiles, right? (laughs) With no evidence whatsoever. It's the most (laughs) insane message. I can't, like, I don't think that message was effective. I think that Donald Trump being a disaster with the pandemic is what helped elect Biden. Um, But now we're also getting this weird pivot within um, congressional Democrats regarding messages of racial injustice, right? They want to now completely abandon messages regarding racial injustice. And so like on one hand, you have like this hyper focus on cultural issues, which they've always been incredibly shallow about. They've never actually wanted to do anything to improve the lives of various minority groups throughout the country. Um, And but they used it for a campaign tool and campaign messaging. And now I just don't know. Uh, I mean, this is more a statement than a um, question. I just don't know what they plan on campaigning on moving forward. It's just nonsense. Yeah, I mean, my view of that is that this was always and inevitably going to happen. They they had to find a way to put a new coat of paint on capitalism. And this is what they did. They created this kind of woke capitalism, right? Uh, yeah. Which is one that's supposed to appeal to broader layers of people by saying, well, we can have more women CEOs, we can have more CEOs from uh, minority backgrounds, and we can have all this internal training about, you know, unconscious racial bias and whatever within our corporate elites. Uh, but the truth of it is the fundamental injustices and inequalities that relate to uh, minority communities, says black people, Latinos, whatever, in the United States, they can't be dealt with. You can't actually come up with solutions to improve people's lives unless you tackle the economic inequalities. And so mm-hmm. they were never going to do that. And so eventually they were always going to drop these things. And it's a bit the same, right, as when, when we had, you know, when just before this period, 
uh, one of the big games they were playing was that they were all in favor of, you know, feminism. Um, and the, the liberal elite were going to put women leaders into these positions. And that was going to massively, just that representation was going to massively improve things for women. And, you know, now young girls will be able to look at the power structure and say, well, that could be me one day. Well, actually, the vast majority of young girls were more likely to be the kind of people who were going to be the victims of the cuts to single mothers and the welfare system in in Britain, for example, who were being thrown under the bus by a female prime minister, they were more likely to be people who would have needed the domestic violence services that were being cut by a female prime minister. Uh, like so, it, it was a it was a game, it was a canard that was being played with the total complicity of the liberal media, of course. Uh, but they never are going to stick with it. You cannot deal with the fundamental injustices in society without dealing with the economic mm. structure. That's it. End of story. And that's also the reason why the left has staying power. Why, even though they come at us and attack us and weaken us, this next decade is not going to be one where the economy is going to magically turn around. It's not going to be one where there's going to be some great improvement in the living standards of working people. Wages are going to keep flatlining. Inequality is going to keep growing. Wealth is going to keep concentrating. And while all that is the case, we've got a shot as defeated as we are, which is why, you know, people need to be real about defeats, the reason why we lost, but they also need to be real about the prospects. Hmm. Well, yeah, Ryan, so you... I don't know why. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead Nando. My bad. <laughs> well, I just want to say that, like, you know, I, I don't know. And I may personally disagree with Margaret Thatcher on, on a few things here or there, but she did smash the glass ceiling. So oh, exactly. never, yeah. take, <laughs> never take that away from her, <laughs> no matter how hard yeah. you try. <laughs> yeah, let me let me chime in on that as a woman. Um, it's I don't know if most women feel this way yet in the United States, but for me personally, it's it's beyond insulting when these conversations happen, right? The conversations about representation, because what it's essentially telling me as a woman is we're going to enable this like culture of tokenism where we'll, you know, we'll put a woman in a certain position, not based on the merits of her work or, or what, you know, she's able to do, but because we want to show everyone that we're, we're great people who are giving women an opportunity. I wouldn't want to get a job knowing that I was chosen only for my gender, as opposed to, you know, the substance that I provide for a new show. Just, just to give an example. Um, so it's, I don't know, I just find it incredibly insulting. And as you perfectly pointed out, Ronan, it doesn't actually do anything to materially benefit the lives of women or, or materially benefit the lives of people in general, workers in general. Um, so I think, sure, representation is great, but it needs to actually lead to something that substantively improves people's lives. Um, but to go back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, just the need to um, organize and to be real about the reality of, of this moment, you also discuss what needs to be done in order to win. And in an interview with um, Michael Brooks, uh, you discussed how we shouldn't try to claim easy victories and how, you know, winning takes a lot more than electoral wins. So let's take a quick look at what you had to say, and I'd like you to elaborate on it. It is not possible to shortcut this. This attempt to kind of reverse engineer socialism by getting people elected who would just like shoot up through the ranks, win an election, and then all of a sudden be able to do it all from above was never going to happen. The truth of it was we found out, what you're talking about the media, 
like this is one great example. We didn't build our own left media institutions. We didn't get our people into the media institutions and therefore the media could destroy us. We didn't do the work of producing more effective uh, socialist institutions and organizations on our own terms and therefore the existing parties, the Labour Party, the Democratic Party could destroy us. We didn't do the work of, uh, of rebuilding the trade union movements in a way that made them a force in society that could reshape the political terrain and put things a little bit more in our favor and therefore capital was able to shape things in a way that, that eventually broke and destroyed our projects. So I think what, what we can say is that you have to pick up some of what's lying around if you're trying to build a political project. There's no point, as you say, in engaging in like total volunteerism, thinking just by your force of your will, you can create a political project that doesn't relate to the world. No, you've got to pick up some of what's there. Yeah, I love what you said there. Um, would you like to elaborate on a little bit? Yeah, I mean, first, just God, what a what a giant Michael Brooks was, and uh, I know, I know, yeah, yeah sad, and, and he is missed, but a uh, great legacy. Yeah, look, I mean, I think the the last uh, decade um, is one where we came from a very low base. Then people should be realistic when they look back at where we were in say 2010 um, and where we are now. We had to to come from a period where like the tide went so far out in the 90s and early 2000s with the kind of uh, what happened, you know, the victories of Thatcher and Reagan particularly and how they structured the world economy. Uh, we, we were off the pitch for a long time. And when the tide came back in, it just picked up whatever was left on the beach. Um, and that meant, you know, Bernie and Corbyn are great examples of this, people who had been, you know, had stuck in mainstream politics, but were very much on the margins. But we didn't have uh, kind of our own organizations, our own institutions. The trade union movements were very, very weak. Uh, and this meant that we started from a from a really low base. Um, and I think that part of what happened is that we, we underestimated, because we didn't have a good enough institutional analysis of what was happening, we underestimated the centre-left. A lot of people, I mean, I would say this was particularly the case in Europe around 2014, 15, and so on. Nando will remember the, the Podemos experience mm -hmm. of them kind of emerging and uh, the idea of a sorpasso there. They were going to take over PSOE, this, the main centre-left party in Spain. Obviously, Syriza won in Greece in 2015 and, and so on. And there was this idea around at the time that we were going to overtake the centre-left, that they were like basically on their last legs, extraordinarily weak. They were imposing austerity everywhere, massively unpopular. All of that is true. The problem is that, you know, uh, we thought just because they didn't have arguments and solutions to the crisis, that that was enough to knock them off. But it wasn't. It was never going to be enough to lock them off because the truth is that the centre-left had this really well-established institutional network that was able to support them from big media networks and, uh, and institutions. You look at you know the likes of MSNBC in, in the United States and the job they did on Bernie during the, uh, the primary campaign. Um, they had very important funding support and institutional support from the liberal sectors of, of capital, which propped them up enormously. They have this whole kind of NGO and professional consultancy network uh, which which buttress them in a number of instances they have like you know more than more right-wing trade union leaderships uh, and all of those are basically creating avenues for people of the center left to do what what their project is fundamentally about which is to get them into some positions of power not to change society but just like to, to be in positions of power, win elections and occupy power as opposed to actually use the power to change society, to transform the economy and so on. That's what they're about. It's occupying the power. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we underestimated the, the resilience of that of the centre left and they were able then to come back and, and, and knock us over because in the end of the day, arguments aren't enough. 
the policies that we had and the kind of solutions to the crisis were correct. And everything that the left has been saying, not just since 2014, 15, the emergence of you know Bernie and Corbyn as major figures, but all the way back to the beginning of this crisis, everything we predicted about what austerity would mean, about the kind of growth and inequality, how it would tear apart the social fabric, how it would deepen the crisis of democracy, uh, how there would be total impunity for the financial sector and it would rise back up to be dominant in our economy again. All of what we said was correct and was true. And all of the solutions that we proposed things like increasing the minimum wage, strengthening trade unions, uh, the Green New Deal, all of these things were the correct solutions to the problems of the day. But it doesn't actually matter on a fundamental level. Um, it's, it's good to have the arguments, but they don't win it for you. What wins it for you is power, is your ability to uh, to put your ideas into practice. I think of the the great line that uh, James Connolly had, that the, the seed of politics is, is not in the brain, but in the stomach. It's, it's your ability to convince the mass of people that you have a program that's in their interest and will improve their lives, and then to be able to channel that energy through institutions by building up the trade union movement, by building up strong structures or their party structures, activist structures, or whatever they are, that actually uh, not only get people engaged, like turning out to one protest here or there, but keep them engaged and make them political players in the communities that they're coming from. Um, building up things like real alternative media uh, institutions that have broad appeal, not just to our own communities on the left, but that can actually reach out. I mean, I think, for instance, TYT is one of the few examples of, of a media institution alternative one that can claim mass appeal. But we built very, very few of those over over the kind of period uh, that we're talking about. And, and it's a grind. Let me just say it is a grind <laughs> um, and it's difficult. Yeah. And there are all sorts of issues that come up and you just want to give up. But you're you're right. I mean, it's I, I just want to emphasize that because it's not easy. Um, but what does make me happy is to see all of these various leftist, you know, media publication shows um, starting to come up like they're starting to really get the acknowledgement that they need. And, and, you know, Jacobin and Tribune are so incredibly important to pushing the narrative further to the left, um, especially in the United States. There's no question about that. But I apologize. Continue. No, I think, yeah. look, it's, it's a good point. We, we need to go further. Um, but we have now, we've got some legacy to hold on to from these periods. It's not enough, um, but we now need to go further. And I think a key thing where we probably went wrong in both the Bernie and the Corbyn project towards the end is as we got more and more under siege, we turned back towards the comfort zones of the left. Our orientation fundamentally needs to be towards the people not towards the left, not towards speaking to our own kind of groups in society, no matter how much the, the views of, of people within them might be correct, no matter how much they might be comrades, and, 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 and all of that is important. We need to think of ways uh, to project the ideas that, that we have across society. And then after that, because the people, when they're given the opportunity to hear that actually things don't have to just get worse forever, and your choice doesn't have to be between some corporate Democrat who's going to sell you out slowly and some like lunatic Republican who's going to tear apart your living conditions quickly. They don't have to be the two solutions, that there is another way you can build a better future, one way your life improves. When people hear that message, they respond to it. The problem is they hear it too infrequently. And then when they do, they don't know how to actually, you know, take it forward. They don't see that one of the big problems of the, the shortcut that I talked about, I think, in, in that Michael Brooks video was this idea that we were going to elect Corbyn as prime minister, or elect Bernie as president, and then that would 
BS, you know, that these people would get mm-hmm. in, they, they put in the good policy solutions, and then, you know, everything would get get better and people could just go back to their lives. It's not really like that. The, the difficulty is if you had elected Corbyn as prime minister or Bernie as president, what would have happened is day one, there would have been a massive attack on their entire program by capital. And we've seen there's really good examples of this back, you know, back through history. Obviously, what happened to Syriza is a great example where they came in with a very good left wing program and they were crushed. Mitterrand in France in the 1980s is another great example of this. He came in with the program Common, which was really an attempt to respond to the, the crisis of the 70s with a left wing direction. And he was crushed. And it's because you have to be able actually not only to have a set of policies that you can implement and give to civil servants who, by the way, won't implement them properly unless, you know, they feel they have to, <laughs> unless you actually have the strength in society to back it up. You have to be able to fight for those policies at every stage. Uh, against powerful interests. You have to build a, a movement that's big enough. And that means like, you know, parties that are fundamentally aligned to work the working class. That means strong trade unions that could fight in the workplace. That means activist campaigns over things like, say, for instance, uh, tenants unions and the housing crisis. If you want to have and see real solutions to the problems of ridiculous runaway rents, well, then you're going to have to organize for them. Because even if you do vote in, into local government or national government, some good left winger who stands up and says, I'm going to do something to like cap the rents. I'm going to put rent controls in or I'm going to build social housing or whatever. The second they try and do that, all of the uh, the aspects of the system, all of the cogs of the machine of capital are going to be turned against them and are going to try and prevent them from doing it. And the only way to keep them on side is for there to be countervailing pressure from the base, from uh, working class people. And that's that's our project. And it's a much longer term one than any quick fix. Yeah. You know, I, people sometimes uh, rag on me for like, focusing too much on the libs, but I, I just agree with you and hearing you talk about it, like they really are our political opponents right now. They really are the, the, the impediment that is in the way of, of, of whatever project we're trying to build. And, you know, I look at things like in the United States um, where like the democratic party has turned toward the suburbs, you know, the, they, they dominate now um, with, sort of um, well-educated voters and things like that and and have completely abandoned their working class base and are bleeding working class voters where while Republican part like while the Republican Party is not yet a working class party by any stretch of the imagination but is making real inroads um, with the working class and this is something that not is not only uh, happening in the United States but is happening all over Europe and you know you know you you're very well kind of versed in in in, in all of the local situations throughout Europe so it can't be, it can't, it, there must be something bigger going on and I don't quite understand what it is. Like, what is that? And like, what is the way forward? Like, cause I mean, at least in the United States, it feels like we're stuck in that there is, you know, we can, we're not going to become Republicans. Obviously we're not going to do that. Um, but, but there, but we can't also do a third party. So like, we're just kind of stuck in this kind of weird between rock and a hard place between the libs and, and, and the Republicans. I mean, one thing to say about what you just described there, Nando, if ever anyone tells you, you know, there isn't an underlying system, like an architecture that that structures all of the economies that we live in, mm-hmm. point out the fact that across the huge cultural differences of yeah. all of these countries in the developed world, the same phenomena crop up again and again and again. And that's because capitalism. That's because mm-hmm. the, the architecture of all the societies we live in 
fundamentally the same. It's a great case for internationalism, but it's also a great case for naming capitalism, which is the one thing the liberals will never do. They will say the system is fundamentally good. The right wingers do it all the time. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. That? You, I know that in the United States, they, they 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 say the word. The liberals just don't say the word because once mm-hmm. they, they they cross over. I mean, I think the fundamental bridge to get people across when they come from you know being within the mainstream liberal opinion to being socialists is the idea the system is fundamentally good but has a few flaws to across the bridge to say no the system is fundamentally wrong and needs to change and once you get people over that bridge well then you know the process of becoming socialists and becoming more radical and so on is um, is largely done i mean that's 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 the question and it really is about pointing out to people how all of the different problems and flaws that they see in the society around them are connected to the same fundamental system, to the same architecture that runs the economy based on profits instead of people's needs. Uh, and once you once you do that and you present, as I said, a compelling picture you can project out into society, people pick up on it really quickly because it corresponds to the experience they have. They're not just having a problem at home in terms of like high rents. They're having a problem in their work and they're having a problem with the council services being cut. And then they're having a problem with their kids' schools being cut back in the in the funding. And all of these problems are happening simultaneously. And people are like looking at them thinking, Jesus, you know, like the scale of, of these issues is so is so massive and it's it's it seems to surround me. Why is that? And we have to say, well, the answer is the system. The answer is capitalism. This is a way in which all of these things are structured. But the question of why why you know the center left is going towards um uh the uh the kind of more cultural um, sectors of society, I think does bring us back to one of the reasons we failed in the last few years. And people, it's important people kind of get their heads around this and understand it, is that, you know, it was a really difficult task what we set ourselves to do. We could never just take over the existing centre-left coalition and hope to have, you know, it implement our policies. Because if you get elected on the back of, you know, the votes of a load of extremely wealthy suburban liberals, the second you get in and you try and increase their taxation, you try and tackle the kind of industries that they work in and the power that they have, they're going to turn against you and you won't, they, you know, they're, they're not going to vote for you anymore. And then your your position in, in, in government is going to be compromised because all the other elected representatives, MPs, for instance, in, in Britain, who represent their fractions of capital are going to simply start you know, voting against you, sabotaging you and, and whatever else. So we had to do something different. Uh, and that is we had to expand the political game. We had to turn a whole lot of people who were non-voters, who were turned off the political system, who were alienated. We had to turn them into people who are active participants in improving their conditions and the, the lives that they, they lived. And you can't do that just with a political party that fights in an election. People need to be able to see you and what you do day to day in their lives. The likes of, say, for instance, in, in Britain, the right-wing tabloids, the Sun and the Daily Mail, are present every single day in the lives of working people because their they're, they're messages are kind of projected across uh, across society in a way that, that we aren't. Um, and the only way to sustainably change the, the electoral map and to bring in people who are, you know, alienated and disenfranchised is to create institutions like fighting trade unions that are going to actually give them a sense in the workplace where they have to, you know, earn their living and sustain themselves, that things can get better. You you can't just assume that we can, you know, uh, reach these people just by having the right policies. We needed to actually change the way in which society, society worked and we couldn't do that. And I think the reason why 
um, the liberal uh, centre is now turning towards more cultural politics, and not only because you know there are big structural questions around globalisation, where actually liberal fractions of capital uh, are the ones that are more aligned with the dominant direction of the global economy for the last 30 or 40 years now, because mm. the, 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 the likes of, say, Donald Trump, the fractions of capital that were more favorable to him were ones that were more, you know, supportive of tariffs being in place, were more supportive of kind of, uh, you know, having a, an American state that was going to basically be captured by big corporate interests and do the, the job for them, but do it in a, in a national basis. Whereas the liberals have been aligned to this kind of, you know, a, a globalized and financialized uh, capitalism for quite a long time. And obviously that creates by its nature, a more cosmopolitan section of of uh, of the, uh, the the ruling elites, and that's part of why uh, they're aligned that way. The other one is one of the reasons why they're really going for it now, and they're trying to change our coalitions to make us culture based coalitions that abandon huge sections of like the less educated uh, working mm. class people and so on. They're trying to go for that because I think they know that in order to hold on to those sections of society they would have to have policy positions that are fundamentally in inconsistent with the people who fund them, with the people who are really, you know, whose interests they serve. They would need to do something um, different in the economy and they would need to frame politics in a different way. That visceral stuff I mentioned earlier, like there is nothing in the rhetoric of a Joe Biden or a Hillary Clinton that responds to the fundamental indignation of working people in America at the way in which the economy runs. They are not people who can channel anger. Liberals look at the anger of the masses of, of working class people and they see irrationality. This is why they hate mm -hmm. populism so much. This is the, the reason why like, they fundamentally hate the idea of populism is because they think it's all this kind of irrational stuff born of low education and people who are not, you know, we don't understand how the system should work and the good sensible ways in which we've run it in the past. The left has to look at that anger and channel it and say, no, we're here to change that system, to fundamentally transform it, and to give you a path to improving your lives that was not available when it was being run by either the, the, the left or the right wing of capital, either the, the liberals or the conservatives. We have, to be, we have to make clear to them that we're about something different. And that means, like, in terms of the whole attitude to politics and, as I said, the visceral nature of it, we have to have a different tone. We have to be on the side of the people against the establishment not on the side of like the smart technocrats against the people who really shouldn't be in power because they're a bit mad or whatever. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, wow. you know, the way the Democratic Party handles or, or messages to voters, it's just so abundantly clear that they hate their base. I mean, it's their base ever speaks up about any type of inequality. I mean, you, it just oozes out of every campaign ad, every debate answer. It's just so abundantly clear. Um, but I did want to ask one question uh, about the pandemic, because, you know, here in the United States, um, there has been this culture of completely abandoning the American people. Uh, there has been um, no new policy or, or um, no new round of stimulus to uh, help average Americans uh, pay their bills, avoid eviction. And so I'm curious if there are similarities between the United States and the UK. Um, has Boris Johnson responded similarly to how Trump has, or has he maybe been a little better? Well, here's, I think it's really worthwhile to make the distinction because 
the UK is is the worst of all the European countries, right? So we have fifty thousand people um, uh, dead uh, and like a really bad and catastrophic response in many ways. But still, because of the social democratic fabric. Uh, that Europe managed to achieve and fundamentally because of the power of the trade unions that they still have over the West European social democracies, there has been a better response, which is the furlough scheme, which is this idea that, yeah, there's a lot of workers left out of it, but a very substantial proportion of, of the workforce, and particularly if you remember the earlier stuff I was saying about the self-employed, they're largely the ones that have been left out, which is another point to which, you know, why capital pushes self-employment so much. But employees have been able to get for a large part of this 80% and then uh, at, at another stage, two thirds of their wages paid by the state for the duration of this uh, of this crisis, which has created a much better uh, safety net for working people in Britain than they have in the United States. And the only reason for that is because the trade union movements in you know West European social democracies were strong enough to go to bat and fight for those policies. They began, the first countries to institute them were the Nordic states, there was Denmark and Norway and countries that have like very high levels of social democracy, very strong unions. Then it began to spread through Germany and another country and, you know, with similar situation. And eventually it gets it gets to Britain. And all the way through, you know, the negotiation was with our trade union, trade union Congress and with big unions like Unite the Union, um, who were, you know, able to make th- those cases and, and able to influence uh, a government policy at a time of crisis. So it's a great message to why you want to have big and strong trade unions in society. Now, why is Britain, the worst of the European examples, not anywhere near as bad as the absolute shit show on your side of the Atlantic, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, still very, very bad. Um, and the reason is because actually the social democratic fabric has been taken apart to such a large extent since the Thatcher era that you've had the NHS, which once was this great beacon of public health care around the world, has been massively underfunded, has had huge amounts of outsourcing and privatization and didn't have the capacity to deal with the scale of the crisis. You also had situations like, you know, key workers. When you think of something like a pandemic, I'll give you an example. Cleaners in hospitals were almost all on uh, insecure temporary contracts with very, very low pay. Uh, and so what ended up happening very quickly was they were pushed to the, the front line because they're dealing with, you know, having to clean constantly every multiple times a day, the hospitals um, where there's a deadly pandemic. And they were pushed to the front lines in those conditions. And that resulted in a lot of cleaners um, for very unfortunately going unwell. It also uh, it resulted in a kind of uh, in, in the early stages of failure because uh, a lot of cleaners were refusing to do it, and quite rightly so. And then there was, uh, you know, industrial action and so on. But like, this is one of the big structural factors. Another reason is the test and trace system. I don't even know if the term test and traces has really gotten to the states yet, given how anarchic uh, things are over there with response to the coronavirus. But one of the reasons why, at least some European countries, and particularly the, the countries of uh, of Eastern Asia, have managed to do so well with controlling the pandemic is because they have a system which is pretty accurate of uh, testing on a mass scale and then contact tracing where anyone who is found to to be positive, uh, anyone who's come in contact with them in, in previous days is immediately told to self-isolate. Um, in, in Britain, it's via an app and so on. And, and our uh, test and trace system has been by far the worst in Europe. And the reason for this is because it was given to chancer private corporations 
and not run either by local authorities or by the NHS proper. It was handed over to Circo and Cytel, who are these like mass outsourcing companies, privatized companies who have for years been like welfare profiteers, effectively making money off the uh, the aspects of the, the state, which should be public services. And it was given over to them. They hired a load of people who like, you know, the, the stories coming out of their call centers were people with no qualification who were basically being sent in and hardly doing any calls, not understanding how the system was supposed to was supposed to work. There was nowhere near enough uh, test centers uh, set up. People were being sent all over the country, you know, being told when they when they had symptoms that they were supposed to somehow travel like at the full length of the country in order to get a test, which, you know, couldn't possibly work. And all of this came down to the fact that this test and trace system was handed over to to, you know, actually fairly corrupt um, corporations and private sector. Uh, so, I mean, Britain is better than the States, uh, but because of our experience with Thatcher, which so mirrored your experience with Reagan, it's on a scale, you know. We are closer to you than a lot of other European countries because the free market policies have made our civic infrastructure so much worse. Huh. Well, um Ronan, I don't know if you have time, but we would love for you to stay with us um, to answer some super chat questions and do uh, the salt segment with us. Um, and Nando, did you have a final question, by the way? I just no, 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 no question. Just, uh, you know, I don't know if it's Ronan's lovely Irish accent, his beautiful visage or his, uh, you know, unbelievable breadth of knowledge and inspiring way of communicating it. But the fans love him. People are loving yeah, them some Ronan. Okay. So that's uh that's yeah. that's very encouraging. Despite so really despite my despite my uh, dingy dark London lockdown uh, come, I'm, I, part of it. I haven't haven't reached American uh, standards of uh, video production yet, but we'll get there. Decide the Atlantic mentioned sure. We'll get there when you so, watch the uh, Tribune the Tribune YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. Tribune TV. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. When we get up when we get our billionaire backers and and finally sell out. <laughs> So when you guys, uh, to everyone watching in our audience, um, you know, write in your super chat questions um, and we'll take a few of them um, in the final segment of the show today. Uh, but while we wait for some of those super chat questions, why don't we do our salt segment and talk a little bit about how the media um, has been covering child labor, <laughs> which is amazing. So, all right. So, um Nando, there was a story that you posted on Twitter that caught my attention. Um, the headline was pretty jarring. It was an op-ed written in The Guardian. And uh, once you click on it, it says, uh, child labor is exploitation, but the household work I did as a child gave me life skills. The previous, is that, is that the new headline? Because I think the no, original. No, that's the new, that's the new oh. headline. The original one was different. Right. The original was very, okay. very different. Do we have the original one by any chance, Kale? If we don't have it, I can read it because I remember yeah, it. Yeah, please says, do. It says, the original headline was, child labor doesn't have to be exploitation. It gave me life skills. So different framing, you know, and I think everyone freaked out. They were like, what are you talking about, person in The Guardian? Um, but the more shocking aspect of the whole thing was that this op-ed was sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly couldn't believe this was published. And so the writer tries to make a distinction between um, child exploitation through child labor and, you know, learning valuable life skills when you're doing child labor in the context of your home, 
I guess. And so, um, you know, she talks about how when she was a child, when she was as young as eight, for instance, um, she had to walk uh, nearly a mile and a half in, in hot weather in order to fetch water for the family. Then she had to prepare um, food for her family. And then after, you know, a long day of work, she had to take care of her siblings. And she, you know, concludes, you know, this whole life experience by saying this or writing this. Uh, Through a Western lens, some might view my experience as child labor. To me, I was learning life skills. And then she continues to write, uh, multinational companies make billions of dollars a year selling cigarettes in the United States, Europe, and elsewhere. The tobacco is produced in tough conditions, much of it by children aged under 14. These practices are rightly considered exploitative. Uh, can be physically and mentally harmful and detrimental to children's futures by keeping them out of school. But, you know, and then there's like that big butt moment in her piece. It was almost as if like, hey, here's the quick blurb I'll write for plausible deniability and then follow it by child labor is actually great. It teaches you character. I mean, that was really the feel of the piece. And it was like just shocking that The Guardian thought it was a good idea to publish that, in my opinion. I think one of the things I find very interesting about it is like, without going into total horseshoe stuff here, the way in which some of this more woke language now has come almost entirely back around to what the old colonialists and imperialists used to say. Oh, well, the West can expect all these kind of things like abandoning child labor and having some kind of decent standard of living. But you people, you know, but in in the West, these are cultural expectations that we can't impose onto the peoples of Africa who are just not quite ready for all of that yet. This is it's incredible when you think about it. These arguments are actually not new. The arguments against, uh, you know, for people who are if you read back in the day, people who were in favor of child labor. They said the same bloody thing. They said, you know, uh, people who the kids should be allowed to do this because, it, you know, when they come from poor backgrounds, they need to be able to learn these skills early in their lives in order to, to train them up so that they can participate in the economy. And it's just this patrician attitude of like elitists who want to get rid of this child labor stuff. It's exactly the same arguments that were had <laughs> back in the days when people were. Uh, like, you know, uh, 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 trying to, to do away with child labor in the first instance, we're now back to them, but just with this like kind of woke gloss, which is, well, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at this through a Western lens. Yeah, those, you're those, being those, Euro, Eurocentric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas those yeah. of us who are part of, let's be honest, if you're writing in The Guardian for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, those of us who are now part of the elite in African society, we understand really that, you know, the people who we exploit are happy when they're exploited they're you know jolly child laborers it's the it's the bigotry of diminished expectations and it is sad it's actually you know one of the big reasons why i think all of this kind of guff that comes out from the liberal uh, elite layers in in african politics is so sad is because for such a long time there were these movements the, the anti-colonial movements which got such a distance to improving the lives uh, of African people, and they were smashed and defeated by imperial projects. Uh, whether it was, you know, the killing of, of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, yeah. which is, you know, the most resource-rich country in the world, whether it was uh, killing Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso, um, the, the defeat of uh, uh, Nkrumah in Ghana. Uh, I mean, you can go through all of the great leaders who tried to actually organize their people to fight back against the domination of big Western corporations uh, in the period period after after colonialism one by one they were they were knocked off and 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 defeated in many cases actually just outright killed because you know whereas 
in in the West, Jeremy Corbyn and, and Bernie Sanders can be just discredited. That's not enough, you know. They, they, it does remind you what what they would do to us if we were in another part of the world. Let's be totally honest. Um, uh, in 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 countries across Africa, uh, liberation leaders and leftists were, were killed. Uh, and in the, in the aftermath of the kind of desert that the imperialism has created um, uh, through so many of destroying so many social movements in, in Africa, you get this stuff. You get, you know, now we're going to go back in in, a, in, a, in the Guardian, in like the centre-left newspaper of, of, of Britain, one of the, the most read so-called progressive institutions in the world. We're going to go back to saying child labour is actually all right because of cultural reasons. If the Bill, if the right. Bill Gates Foundation pays for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is preposterous. Yeah, and, and, you know, she poses this question, which completely speaks to what you were uh, saying, Ronan. She writes, however, where do you draw the line between what is internationally deemed a crime and a natural process of transferring skills? Is international concern on child rights relevant to Africa? I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It's like the playbook (laughs) that you perfectly described um, was used in this argument. Um, it's, It's incredible. It's like that. It's like that classic drill tweet where it's like, uh, "Are drunk driving laws immoral because it makes some people late for work?" You know, like it's like we cannot know. This, these things are impossible to know. Whether where, the, where to draw the line, it's impossible to know. And it strikes me like it reminds me all these arguments are. This is like a very twisted and sick one version of it, but it's it's no different also from the arguments that uh, the Uber CEO is using to uh, to push Prop Twenty Two. Uh, that, you know, like, you know, just what are you going to you gonna tell a worker like when he can and can't work like uh, they they should have the freedom to choose those things. And they, they can build and structure their lives the way they they see fit because they know better than you, you you elitist uh, prick. You know, like it's just it's yeah. they use the same the same tricks over and over again. I think they also like when you look at the, the way in which this is, you know, being structured in, in relation to the global economy, this is not a fluke. And this is why it's so important we build our own institutions because you know relying on the likes of the guardian comes with these huge costs there people in in the liberal sectors of the business elite are looking at the rising cost of wages in countries like china which have a huge amount of the production in the world economy uh, and also other countries of, of, of eastern asia and they're asking themselves what in the name of god are we going to do when in 10 15 <laughs> and 20 years to squeeze the profits out uh, from you know the shifting of of production to poorer countries uh, and they're starting to prepare the ground again for all, for the justification of all kinds of stuff i mean already Industries like Coltan and Africa and all the rest of it are absolutely appalling uh, in terms of their labor standards. And with so many kids who are actually mining the things that go into our iPhones and all the rest of it, um, already it's it's in a it's in a dreadful state. But they're preparing the ground for the next stage, which is that all of this is going to now be justified, and it's going to be justified with cultural arguments, which is against the the socialist ideas of universalism that everyone on the planet is entitled to basic standards of living. They're entitled entitled to decency at work, they're entitled to uh, dignity in their lives, they're entitled to public services and healthcare and education, and these are our arguments. But the Liberals' arguments, because, you know, they've got to fit it within the capitalist system, oh no, there are these cultural differences that mean that actually <laughs> it's fine in Africa, it's, you know, which is which is a way of, you know, explaining why it's not fine here. It's not fine here and it is fine in Africa because cultural distinctions, where rather than the fact that actually, you know, all of Africa's wealth has gone to lining Western uh, elites' pockets for for generations. Yeah, 
The, the other thing that really bothers me about this outside of the, the, the arguments is the, is the Bill Gates thing. I mean, it's funny. I, I joked on it on Twitter, like the QAnon people are right because everyone thinks Bill Gates is like a pedophile and like him advocating for child labor laws just feeds into that narrative. But like the, the real sinister thing about all of this is that um, not the, maybe not the real sinister, but one of the sinister aspects about all of this is that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation like are very savvy about doing things like sponsoring content for news organizations that are strapped for cash. And in the United States, what they do, is, what they focus on almost exclusively is uh, public school privatization. Um, and they'll just fund these like giant, like very incredibly generous uh, grants to news organizations to do like educational content, you know, like the, I think like NBC News has like a big grant from them and things like that. And like what they do is basically buy propaganda, the ability to propagandize in the mainstream media. Um, for their whatever hobby horse uh, issues they care about because they're billionaires and they can do it. Um, in, in, in this case, for Bill and Melinda Gates in the United States, it's always, always charter schools and school privatization. In Africa, it's now apparently uh, abolishing child labor laws. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, this, this question of the media, I know Anna was um, you know, going to discuss some of these media questions at some stage um but i think it's so important it's another one of those areas that the fundamental line between you know being a liberal and being a, a socialist in terms of how you understand what what the media is about is it this kind of intrepid institution where the journalists are going in to find out what the powerful are doing about us mm. or, or or is the fundamental nature of the media that it's projecting the opinions and views of very wealthy people around the world and you just need to look at this this structure of it you need to look at who funds it for instance in britain as i said a majority of all the newspapers people read every day owned by two corporations uh rupert murdoch's news uk and the daily mail group and if you're super wealthy you can just use those to project your views and actually i think it's also a question for alternative media like people say to us it's, you know that that thing you guys will be here a lot in the states why don't we just have a tea party of the left and whatever well mm. like well, then, you know, give us the Koch brothers of the left and maybe we will. Right. The, problem is, yeah. the problem is that we're, situ- we're sitting in a situation where like these so-called great and very successful right wing uh, alternative media uh, outlets that have been used to like create the Trump phenomenon and whatever else are funded by hugely wealthy interests, usually billionaires who have no interest in whether they mo- make money or not. They're not they don't have to try and stand on their own feet. They just throw endless supplies of, of money at them because they shape the political landscape in their interests. And we don't have anything comparable on, on our side of the aisle. I mean, the, the question for us, some trade unions might have some funds, but they've obviously got to use those in lots of cases to, mm-hmm. to fight other battles. Uh, but they're really the only institutional funders of any of any significance is you, you do get the occasional kind of say silicon valley bernie bro or something who'll break and he'll, yeah. but it's not enough i mean systemically it's not enough the right has this endless supply and so they look like they're making this great success out of their alternative media uh but like we would be doing the same if someone handed us a billion quid to um to, to build our institution. what would you do with a billion quid i would do two chicks at the same time but i don't know what, do you, what about you what would tribune do <laughs> I do it a billion quid. That is that is a, that is a question. I think the the video side of things, but based on the fact that get once again that the algorithms uh, of these social media companies are now being so weighted towards video, um, that you've got to be serious about trying to engage that medium. The problem yeah. of it, say for say for Tribune, and uh, this is like letting people look under the hood, which is I'm always nervous about, but you know whatever I'll do it. We're in we're in that section. So uh, you know it's very hard to monetize video. 
By contrast, to say, yeah. for instance, when you've got a when you've got an article up on your site and people are coming in to read it and they can see a link to subscribe and they go through, they make they make it very very difficult these social media platforms to monetize video because what they want actually is this perfectly sealed space where people are scrolling down, they see one video and they don't leave it to go to another website. What they stay mm-hmm. and they go to the next video and the next video and the next video. That's what they're trying to create so that every all the traffic stays within Facebook, for instance. And uh, that makes it very, very hard to monetize it uh, on, on, on our side. Obviously, YouTube, it's somewhat different, but it's still incredibly difficult to be able, you know, you have to build these huge audiences. And YouTube has made it much harder in the past few years to build. Mm-hmm. So this is the other thing that's happened now that the social media kind of what what was um, quite a scrappy upstart section of capitalism became basically the dominant fraction of capital is they've now made it much harder to get in the game. So if you Mm. are not in early and established a big audience, it's now very, very hard to get like broad audiences quickly um, through setting up, you know, new channels and whatever else because the system is kind of, the algorithms are weighted against you. I, I do think you have to do something about that. I don't know, a billion quid, man, is so far off what... Uh, By the way, <laughs> before I get cancelled, that was an Office Space reference. You you kids just don't remember the good movies from the 90s. The, no, it's over, Nando. Space. It's over. You, you, you're I'm not canceled. allowed to be on the show again. You're cancelled. It's over. No. Yeah, you're um, off. You're off. Sorry. I'm off. <laughs> Ronan's um, going to replace me. None of us mm-hmm. want to cut off Ronan because he's too goddamn fucking good at this. But we yeah. should take some super chat questions. And yes. some came in. And so I want to get to a couple of them. Some of them are for you, Ronan. Um, it's like it's like Christmas at Jacobin. Everyone's getting one. Um, let's see. Uh, so first, I just this one directly at you. Could Ronan speak a bit about any successes or failures of NHS workers to organize and demand better working conditions? Uh I, I think they mean in general, but maybe more particular in the last year uh, with the pandemic. Well, it's slightly different to NHS workers. Um, I, I, will, I can you know, talk a bit about that. There have been successes for cleaners, no question about it. There's been successes for, uh, I, I give a shout out to Helen O'Connor and the GMB union and the fight that they've been waging on behalf of hospital cleaners, which has, been, which has had many great successes during the course of the, uh, the pandemic. We're going to have an article in the forthcoming issue of Tribune about care workers, um, which a care is obviously like very substantially privatized because you know, we didn't have like an NHS moment for care in this country. Uh, the population grew older at the same time as like, you know, we live under Thatcherism. Huge sections of the care economy are in the hands of, again, these welfare profiteers, private companies who make money off things that should be public services. Um, we're going to have a piece on Unison in the northwest of England um, and their campaign where they have managed to add, I think, 6,000 uh, workers to uh, care workers uh, to the union during the course of the pandemic. And they fought for a one things like livable sick pay, which they weren't entitled to under under um, uh, UK law. Um, so there have been successes, and I think those should be highlighted and spoken about. And uh, I give a, a shout out as well to Kevin Nelson and his his lot in the Northwest uh, Unison and their great efforts to organise care workers. Fantastic. Um, speaking of unions, uh, Paul Prescott, who's a regular at Jacobin, um, mm. thoughts on the potential for unions such as Unite Here to utilize the robust canvassing operations to help win, tax the rich ballot measures, and elect genuine left-wing candidates. Uh, That's for everyone. Um, Ronan, obviously, if you want to jump in on that, too. Well, I'll leave it to the uh, Americans first, because they know more than this than me. I'm not familiar with Unite Here, but, uh, you know, I mean, 
I guess that that's the only way. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting about this election cycle is that tax the rich initiatives have failed, at least in, in California, Prop 15 failed. And that was that would have been a, a pretty massive transfer of wealth, um, at least in the context of the United States, downward um, from the rich to to working people. Um, and that failed. Um, but there have there were some tax the rich initiatives that did succeed. Um, I believe in Arizona, there was one that that succeeded in, you know, Arizona has seen some pretty significant organizing in the last uh, several years, uh, which is one of the reasons why, for example, like L- Latinos in Arizona did not break for Trump in the same way that they that they did in Texas or uh, Florida. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it's it's this it's the age old it's the age old solution to the age old problem. You know, yes, the trade unions would revitalizing the trade union movement would go a long way to, to electing the next Bernie Sanders or or or, or, or um, instituting ballot measures that do actually tax, tax the rich because here in the United States, we just simply do not do that ever. Yeah, you know, just to add my two cents to it, I mean, I don't think that it would hurt. And, you know, in the context of the United States, um, we do have examples of what has worked. It's just that, unfortunately, what has worked is on the right. And so just take a step back and look at the various ways in which the right wing, through, you know, a a very long-term project that they committed themselves to, were able to... um, basically take hold uh, of power in various uh, areas of our government. So with the Supreme Court, for instance, with federal judges, they're precise in their messaging. And I think that that's important. So I know right now there's this big debate about defund the police. And I go back and forth on it quite a bit. But I I think that we we need to have um, a little more analysis about messaging that appeals to a broader base of people. Uh, Rodan, I love what you mentioned during our interview regarding, you know, we're not just trying to appeal to like-minded individuals. We're trying to persuade a broader group of people to come join us. And I think when you have messaging that hasn't really had any type of critical analysis, like defund the police, it can turn people off. You You shouldn't be put in a position where you literally have to explain what defund the police means. And I, I, I find that Unfortunately, those are the conversations that are being had right now. Um, just this multi-pronged approach. We do need to care about electoral politics, even though, you know, it's not my favorite uh, topic to discuss. But we also need to talk about organizing workers. We do need to talk about um, general strikes and challenging um, the elite, the people with power, the people with capital. Um I just feel like right now we don't have a multi-pronged approach. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at with uh, that question. Right. And I'll just add, there's been some success in the last few years. Um, I'm thinking of people like Dave Regan and a number of the healthcare workers on the West Coast, that they've been very active with ballot measures and have been successful in getting many of these passed. Um, But it then kind of butts up against the limitations of federalism in the U.S. that, uh, you know, and then it comes back to everything that we've been talking about, that these like state focused progressive efforts are going to have massive limitations, both in like what can go on a ballot measure, but then also like what fits within a state budget. And so this is something where I'm close to uh, a lot of people who are doing work in New York and New York, well, New York state for um, kind of uh, incoming uh, 
democratic socialist legislators to Albany thinking about what can we get passed within the state government. And the thing is, is that um, I think Amber, Amber Lee Frost said this in her recent Jacobin piece, like there's no coincidence why uh, a state like New York or a state like California, which like, you know, the reason why they have such a massive budget compared to other states, and you can conceive of the fact that they could have these state-level programs, is the fact that, like, this is where capital lives. So, like, you're at the belly of the beast, and and so, like, that on top of just federalism is so difficult to get our budgets, like, our initiatives through these budgets, and so I think do it when you can obviously you should push forward with these things uh and the heart of all of this needs to be growing the union movement uh but fundamentally both like politically like what it means to actually kind of wage the campaigns and then also get these things passed i think it still has to be at the national level um for the that's my two cents it's i know it's very different than what Ronan's probably familiar with in the UK. Uh, no, look, uh, it, you know, you guys have a, have a lower base with trade unions for a variety of reasons. We didn't have, for instance, McCarthyism in the same level that you did. There's a big, the big reasons to do with the Cold War history of the states for why um, trade unions were so uh, smashed. Because actually the interesting part of it is that for a long time, the US was as strong in terms of unionization, if not stronger than Britain in the early part of the 20th century, the late 1800s and, and so on, early part of the 20th century, and yeah. was pioneering um, with the, the likes of the early Wobblies and the IWW movement, all the rest of that. Um, but, you know, we didn't have to deal with, uh, with the systematic destruction of trade unions by driving radicals out. Um, in the way that happened with the uh, the CIO and stuff like this in, in the US. It just wasn't the same level uh, in, in Britain. It did, they did try it, but they didn't get anywhere uh, like the same distance they did with you guys. One of the interesting things I think about this, and I'll keep it short because I'm sure there's more questions, but um, it strikes me that there, I don't have the answer to it, but it strikes me that there's an interesting combination between um, the importance of the trade union movement uh, and how uh, the, the weakness that it has with young people and the need to revive the union movement and the fact that right now so much of our like strongest and, and most engaged base on the left is young people. Um, yeah. There has to be a way of matching those together. I understand the difficulties. Very often young people now are not only like outside of trade unions, but in lots of cases, like even their parents weren't in trade unions. Yeah. It's like Britain, whereas like in the past, they would have had an understanding what the union was about, the culture of it. They're in industries that are kind of new industries that don't have a union tradition. They didn't pick it up at the home. They learned nothing about it in school. And so, you know, yeah. where where are you expecting people to 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 pick up that they should be in a union? Well, we probably have to be the people who, who say that and not just be in a union, because, of course, anyone can have a card. The point is to organize. Um and the point is to give people a sense that you're better off when you have some democratic representation in your workplace involving your colleagues than if you don't. And even if it might feel from time to time like, you know, your manager is a lovely guy or he's, you know, uh, already with us and trying to do his best, there will almost always come a moment in an, in an employment situation where there'll be some instance, whether it's a case of someone being laid off, you know, can you get your days off? Is there a sick pay situation? Is there a harassment case? There will almost always come a time when you'll be better off being organized with your colleagues than that. Uh, and we have to be making that case. Yeah, and so there's actually, there's another super chat question that's very generous from McMindfulness uh, that I wanted mm. to read, saying, how can immigrants be unionized when labor law is not being enforced in general? 
George mm. Galloway calls mass immigration a form of class war. How can we strengthen conditions for all workers and prevent immigration from being used against solidarity? Um, it's a massive topic, but... Uh, and so that's worthy of an entire show in and of itself to go into. Um, but yeah. If, let, me, let me say two things on that. Um, yeah. So one thing I'll say in it is this. We can't give up the migration argument to the right wing's framing. Uh, I understand the arguments about uh, undercutting, which can definitely uh, and do happen. Uh, we can't give it up to the right wing's framing because fundamentally, once you introduce the idea that, that the reason for low pay is not the fact that bosses are exploiting you, but the fact that someone else who's working alongside you, who's been brought in and exploited to an even greater degree than you, that it's their fault. Once you introduce that idea, then class consciousness, class solidarity is eroded. The fundamental idea of it begins to fall apart. So you can't uh, you can't go along that 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 track. At the same time, it, there's no point in going into places, say for instance, where there is a st- relatively strong union culture, and um, the people are, are are trying to attack it by using the fact that the labour laws aren't strong enough, and that they can hire people to do the work for less. There's no point in going in there and moralising to people about about that and from that perspective. What you have to then do is make the case that the best way to beat back against this is to organize migrant workers into the trade unions and to try to fight for a uh, a situation where unions are understanding the way in which capital uses all labor, regardless of where people are from. They try to move labor around. It's a bit like the bogus self-employment thing we were talking about earlier. They try to put it in in new conditions, in exceptional circumstances. Wherever there is a strong base of uh, union representation, capital will try and surround that with all kinds of structures and factors that are going to undermine it, whether it be workers who are on lower pay, whether it be you know scabs who they can use during uh, strikes, whether it be uh, bogus self-employment that they can try and seduce some of the workers into, they will try and surround it. And you have to take on those factors. And that means that it, the union movement, rather than being sector by sector or even worse, workplace by workplace, it has to, it has to see things from a class perspective. Trade unionists have to look around and say the working conditions on the other shops on my street, the working conditions in the other warehouses down the road impact us here because if they can get away with paying next to nothing and having you know no healthcare protections and whatever else, well then our bosses will start doing it here too because they're in competition, uh, the capitalists between themselves. Uh, so you, ha- you have to have that perspective. Yeah, I think that's Exactly. Well said. Um, and it's the yeah. it's a political question. It's incumbent on organizers to make the case for universal politics, universal values. Yeah. And, and then say that, you know, it's in your interest for us all to be uh, all the workers to be united in this fight that uh, and, and it's not it doesn't come natural to capitalism. So it, it has to be a political struggle. It has to be hard conversations with people to say solidarity is the better way out of this horrible predicament. I mean, it's just a big part of what what we have to do all the time. Channel anger upwards, not down. Yeah, that's like yeah. It, it, the fundamental job of socialists. Yeah, and and that was one of the things that that kind of frustrated me about. There was like a left debate a few years ago on open borders and all that stuff, and and there was this this idea that that capital was united in their love for open borders, and that strikes me as completely backwards. Um, I think capital is for the open free flow of capital, but the restriction of borders, right. I mean, at least in, in the United States, like in post NAFTA, that's when we saw border militarization, um, when there was free trade, 
because it, it benefits capital to have free flow of capital, but restriction of workers to, to then be able to move capital where it's cheapest. Uh, so, I mean, we can't, we can't be, so we can't be moralistic yeah. about it either. You know, no, like, no, no. Insofar as capital, capital is for whatever weakens workers. If yeah. open borders and free movement of people in a certain situation is good for capital and profit, well, then they'll be for it. Yeah. Yeah. If it's not, yeah. they'll be against it. Totally. That's, that's generally their line. And, and maybe that doesn't hold up in 10% of cases, but go in and look under the bonnet in 90% of cases. That'll be it. Yeah. Yeah. So last, last Super Chat question. This is from Eclectic Miscellanea. And they say, love the interview. This is the type of discussion us Yanks on the left need. Uh, I guess this is for Anna, maybe. Any chance Ronan could be invited back on to TYT? Hey. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm trying to, like, my schedule is insane, but I'm trying to do more um, episodes of the conversation. So I interviewed KJ Brooks, um, who went viral after she gave her two-minute statement um, to the where was it? Uh, I think it was Kansas City, Missouri, um, Kansas City uh, Board of Police Directors, something like that. But anyway, she was incredible. We found her and I did a, a conversation with her, but I want to do more of them. So Ronan, if you're um, up to it, I'd love to have you on TYT. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I have to get myself into a studio space, though, because this is obviously I can't have a home studio, I man. Be have I can't have us yeah. be shown up by by yeah. these Americans. Get a ring light, yeah, light just influencer. Just buy it's, yeah. a light. Take your <laughs> That's off. all you need. <laughs> That's all you need. Yep. Anyway, thank you. Yeah, I would love to have you. So um, we'll touch base. Cool. All right, I'm gonna we're gonna all end right. the show there because that was. Awesome. Ronan, you gave us so much time and an incredible amount yeah, of wisdom, very generous. as always. Good seeing you, homie. Peace Thank out. Thank you, Ronan. I'm delighted to do it. See you guys soon. Later. See ya. All right. And thank you to everybody watching. Um, we always appreciate when you like and share the stream. That's one of the best ways to help grow this show and get this message out there. And um, yeah, Nando, any final words before we go? No, I just uh, was very, I just always love hearing Ronan speak. I mean, he's just very, very inspiring um, and clear-headed at the same time, which is a good combination to have. Yeah, absolutely. And make sure you check out his full conversation um, with Michael Brooks. Um, that was a fantastic discussion uh, that touched on many of the themes that we talked about today. And I know you'll enjoy it. So thank you for watching, everyone. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you soon. Music.